It's still a podcast presented by Fangraphs in sunny and cold DeKalb, Illinois. I'm Kevin Goldstein, and joining me for this very special episode is someone who I certainly had a lot of fun with last time he was co-hosting, and I thought he'd be good for our special little weird episode today. He is the... What are you? The what editor? I don't actually know that I have an official title. I'm just an editor, I think. He's the something editor. This is how this is how Meg protects her her fiefdom is <laughs> she just doesn't she just doesn't give me a title. He's the something editor and social media guru. Sorry, Meg. For fan graphs and joining us from beautiful Manhattan. It's John Taylor. John, how are you? Good. Sunny and cold here as well, although with some mild cloud cover. How cold is it? Uh, I'm actually looking it up right now because I, I figured that would be the next question. It is 40, but it feels like 32 because it's very windy here today. Ah, it's in the it's in the. So it was we, 19 we, when I woke up this morning. Ooh, yeah, we have our first real feels like winter day here in New mm-hmm. York. Uh, now that we're getting close to Thanksgiving, which is cool that fall just didn't happen. So, uh, you know, you already took a shot at Meg. Someone who will remain nameless at FanCraft said, "I don't even know if you should do an episode this week," and we're not going to do that to you. Was it it's also an- Meg? It was not okay, um, but so I, of course we're going to do an episode this week. We need to we need to, to to treat the listeners and and podcasts are really great for traveling. It's a big travel week, and you know maybe you're on a plane right now on your way to hear the thinly veiled racist tri- diatribes of your uncle Frank, or maybe you're on a long drive and you're going to visit Aunt Betty, who's going to tell you she's not really worried about COVID because there's a freely available horse dewormer you can get at Farm and Fleet. They'll take care of it right away, and, and you so, can probably buy it with crypto. <laughs> so now that we've covered it's not an episode unless we talk about weird crypto libertarian dudes um so you know we want to put something in your ear holes uh obviously it's not easy to get a guest it's tuesday afternoon everyone's traveling stuff like this so we just wanted to read your emails and i gotta tell you i asked you for emails i gave you a warning this was coming and you folks came through we have tons of emails to talk about we do have a little bit of baseball news i want to get to before we pop into the emails uh john um, and the first is breaking news. Mm. Uh, the Tampa Bay Rays and Wander Franco have agreed to a, a extension. The extension was rumored um, for a few days now, and now we have details. Uh, it looks like it's a, at its base level. Uh, it's a complicated deal. It's 11 years and $182 million in guarantees. Uh, there is a 12th year option, club option, that $25 million, and there's all sorts of escalators based on MVP voting um, that could make it worth as much as $223 million. Um, good for Wander. And and it's, it's, it's shocking in the sense that if you asked me before these rumors started where Wander would be in five years, and I, my answer would have been getting traded before he entered his final year of arbitration. Yeah, I've been uh, making that joke nonstop since. That was the one thing that gave me solace during the Ameri- during the division series, watching a 
kid who's younger than the first generation iPod just torture Boston pitching with every at bat and being like, at least I only have to put up with this for five more years. Nope. <laughs> so, um, no, I'm sure you've all seen Wander. Wander is a uh, that's a special player. That's uh, a special talent. Um, he was, uh, I believe, universally seen as the number one prospect uh, in baseball entering the year, and he really wasn't even seen as a as a um, normal number one prospect. He was uh, above and beyond even that. He is a special number one prospect, special player, and he's going to be a Ray for a very long time. And uh, I'm kind of surprised by this. Uh, I know. That when young Latin players sign extensions, um, based on things like uh, Ronald Acuna and Ozzy Albies, people talk sort of talking about how Latin players are exploited. I get it; you're not completely wrong. Uh, at the same time, uh, you know, Wander was years away from making real money. Um, this is a major league baseball contract, it's not an NFL contract, so all the money is guaranteed. And I, I think it's uh hard to to fault wander or even his representatives for for taking this and and getting the money in his bank account yeah there, i i don't see any way really in which 200 million dollars in your bank account immediately more or less is a bad thing uh, i'm sure yeah you can make the argument yeah there are front offices that are predatory toward these players in the ways because they're targeting guys who came from in most cases relatively nothing going all the way down to absolutely nothing, mm-hmm. knowing that they are dangling more money in front of them than they will ever see in 50 lifetimes. So, you know, that obviously yeah. is, is part of that. And obviously the fact that these guys are not usually not proficient in English enough to negotiate their own deals, some of them relying on agents who are much smaller and have no experience with this, as was the case, I believe, with Albie's agent, who Ozzy was really his first big client and it right. kind of showed. But I mean, all that aside, yeah, this is a this is a great deal, I think, for all sides. I mean, could Wander Franco have made more after in the next two years or so of full season ball? You know, would it cost more at that point to buy out what was left of his arbitration and free agent years? Maybe on the whole, sure, there's certainly a possibility. Of course, the flip side of that is always maybe he you know trips over a, a sprinkler head in spring training next year and tears his ACL. You know, there's right. There is always that negative. I cannot fault him for locking in twelve. Or was it ten or twelve years? I've, I've already forgotten. It's eleven guaranteed. There's eleven guaranteed. For a 12. Okay, so I can't fault him for locking in eleven years. I can't really you know like, at all. The the interesting to me about this is that the Rays would actually do this. Right. Um, as far as I can, as far as I know, or as far as I can remember, this is the you know obviously this is the biggest contract they've ever handed out in the existence of their franchise. I think the only real compare like comparable contract is what Evan Longoria got uh, ten or so years ago, right around the time he made his debut. Right. And I know so, that this was a thing that the Rays at the time, and I assume uh, still continue to do, is they offer those those kind of long contract extensions to recently called up players within the first one to three years of their career who are still, you know, pre-arb or, or, you know, whatever exactly it is that they are to try to lock that in as soon as they can. But yeah, this is definitely something that they have not tried to do in a while. And I guess, I guess you could argue, you know, who was the candidate previously. Yeah, I was about to that say, like, been, who would you give it to? This extension. I guess the only, right. I mean, the guy on that roster right now, otherwise you would see in that regard is Randy or Rosarena, but that's a, it's probably a different discussion at this point. But yeah, I, I just I honestly thought the Rays franchise is currently constructed and currently owned would just never do this kind of thing. So color me pleasantly surprised, I suppose. I mean, it's the I think the especially great thing is it's just so good for Rays fans that this guy is now going to be there for 
I'm not going to say all 11 years. There's like a, there's about a 0% chance of him making it all 11 years in a, in a Rays uniform. It's but important to know. Certainly they're going to get him for a very yeah. good long time, and he is very clearly the centerpiece of, of everything they want to do. Right. He does not have a no-trade clause. So they can trade him, um, along with the deal, obviously, uh, at any sort of point. Um, the other thing I want to talk about before we get into the emails is that we did have kind of a, a semi-breaking story uh, concerning— Oh, President Pierce, very upset— um, probably barking at a cat. I'm so glad uh, I know that's your dog because for a minute there I was going to say, are you doing a seance with our least popular 19th century presidents? <laughs> is he the least popular? Franklin Pierce is way down there. Like, he, he, like I know, is he worse than Andrew Jackson? No, but Andrew Jackson is uniquely one of like the five worst presidents right. in American history. Like, if not the actual worst in American history, given everything he did to, to submarine reconstruction. But... He's he's part of that, and, and any Simpsons fan, I don't know, part of that group of forgotten presidents between Andrew Jackson and and, Lincoln. and Abraham Lincoln, who were all important in their own way, um, certainly, especially when it came to expanding the boundaries of the United States, and every time the question of slavery came up, going, ooh, no, that's not, no, no, no. But, yeah, I, I, I am hard-pressed to think of the major Franklin Pierce... He was kind of a tragic figure. Um, he was a horrible president, but like, so he. Uh, <laughs> I like how even you admit he's a terrible president. But like, it's it's uh, he's kind of a tragic figure because he um, he uh, he had a, a a child die, and his wife thought it was like a curse on them getting becoming the president on him becoming the president, and she did not go to Washington with him, and so he went uh, solo, and he. Uh, and this is this is probably the thing I like about him. And then he just spent every night in the White House getting drunk, like blackout. Yeah, drunk. I I looked up his Wikipedia page just to figure out what exactly was his like his big... legacy. Is he got blackout drunk in the White House every night? Yeah, he died of cirrhosis. Like he really <laughs> boy, like it, this is really not a presidency you want to think about too often. No, too he's 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 person. our. I mean, he's a bad president. He's also maybe our president who is most like a member of the replacements. Yeah, I guess it'd be it'd be either him or, to a certain degree, Ulysses Grant. <laughs> yeah, certainly. Yeah, there, I mean, there. That's the thing, I, I, and this is probably just the the general baseline for all nineteenth century presidents and generally nineteenth century heads of state. The great majority of them were probably just soused to the gills <laughs> most of the time that they were they were upright. So, yes, if they were upright. So. And I, I think i can name every president but uh, like my real weak spot i really think is that spot you talked about kind it's, of from it's Jackson. Like, i just always remember like the one before lincoln was james buchanan our yeah. only quote-unquote bachelor president yes um, the, the very odd looking james buchanan <laughs> you had a very strange story and a very weird james k polk in there yeah we got um, we got both uh james tyler and mm. john Taylor, or not john taylor that's me that's uh, you. You were president. <laughs> James Taylor, thank you. Uh, or that's. So I'm just showing my terrible lack of. <laughs> it's horrible. It's fine. So James Polk, followed by Millery Fillmore. It was President Zachary Taylor. Yes, Millard Zachary Fillmore. Taylor. So I'm thinking of. I'm just. I'm. That's the thing. You you can't help but just mash all those guys together into one giant ball of Pierce Moore Polk Taylor. And I also think like half those guys did die drunk, for what it's worth. I think. Well, I mean, I think. I know. I know. Taylor I think eighty percent of eighty uh, percent of of people who died in the eighteen hundreds were drunks, right? Taylor was the one who died of a bad stomach from drinking milk and ch and eating cherries, right? <laughs> Which is just like the. I don't think that's the. Yeah, it was him. I don't know if that's the most nineteenth-century presidential death because 
James Garfield dying not of his bullet wound from the assassin who shot him, but from the hideous medical treatment he received from doctors, which included feeding him rectally for whatever reason. So, hey, everyone tuning into this has just gotten a really long digression. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. We hope <laughs> when you're, you're enjoying having your, your turkey, meal. Make sure, be glad that you're not James or James Garfield and you don't have doctors putting it uh, where it should not go. We hope you've enjoyed this preview of our spinoff podcast, Drunk Presidents, with Kevin That would be it. I mean, Drunk History does well. Drunk Presidents. You could do a definite podcast series just on the loser presidents. (laughs) So all 45, 9 or 6? Yeah, I mean, honestly, it's everyone who... I mean, you'll do the special Boomer edition for Kennedy where we pretend he was great, and then after, you can be like, guys, he didn't get anything done. Come on. My favorite thing about Kennedy, uh, (laughs) you can talk about presidents, was the fact that he actually didn't want to be the president at all. No, I'm not sure. Why, like why would you? Why was, By that point in time, like, by, right. the, by the time the mid-20th century has rolled around, I think everyone knows enough at that point that wanting to be president means you want to destroy your life in the process. Right. Like, like Joe Kennedy wanted one of his sons to be president. The eldest one died in World War II. And all of a sudden, Mysteriously. It, was, it, was, it, was, it was stuck on Jack. Or is he really dead? Or is he really going to come back? I, I was going to say, president? at this point, I've just been conditioned to believe by the internet that every single Kennedy is still alive. Right. And it's are our, also Freemasons. Or QAnon, or or um, what was the other the one that isn't Freemasons? The uh, the other secret society that runs America, Illuminati. Yes, thank you, the Illuminati. Outstanding. Now now they're gonna kill me for saying that on air. <laughs> Let's talk about other baseball news, John. Let's talk about baseball. Uh, 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 J.P. Hornstra of the Orange County Register got his hand on something interesting this morning and wrote about it, and you can go check that out at the Orange County Register. Um, which was a 36-page guide slash memo sent to members of the Major League Baseball Players Association by the MLBPA. Um, And it was basically um, your guide to a lockout, if you will, Um, which shows that uh, obviously they're anticipating a lockout. If you didn't think the lockout was – if you thought there was any chance – like I know um, know, we had Evan on last week talking about labor issues, and we talked about chances of there being a lockout. We were all like 97, 98. Just make it 100. and, and yeah, I, I've for- I've never believed like I'm, even even if it's a sh- even if I don't think it's going to be a, a 1994-esque lockout, I've always thought like yeah, there's there's no way they get this done in time. The right. deadline is simply too soon. The MLB uh, PA would not have sent this memo out if they didn't think there was going to be a lockout. And it's I had a, a discussion with a a uh, unnamed Major League Baseball executive, and we were talking about some things. And I said, hey, let me ask you a question. Did you even book a trip for the winter meetings? And he just went, nah. Said, okay. <laughs> That tells me everything I need to know. <laughs> and uh, so, uh, but anyway, this this 36-page memo sent to union members by the union itself uh, gave some details, um, which is, you know, and again, we haven't had a problem labor-wise since 94, 95. They did say uh, in precedent with other leagues, thinking about football and hockey who have had labor issues since then, uh, they will argue for a position that injured players unable to play at the time of the lockout must be paid and have access to rehabilitation. Um, so injured players would be able, they are going to argue injured players should be allowed to use the facilities and, and still receive rehabilitation services from the team. Uh, they say drug tests will be unlikely based on um, previous again hockey and football stuff. Uh, they will use funds that they that they've uh, put in a war chest. Uh, they've been hoarded, hoarding licensing fees since 2018 uh, first for just such an occasion. Um, if the lockout runs into the season, they will be using those funds to provide health benefits for union members. Um, this is not a big issue, but they just wanted to make it clear. Union members can play in foreign leagues should they so desire. 
Um, questions about lost service time are still unanswered um, and would be part of the negotiation itself. If the lockout ran into the season, all of a sudden there were service time questions, they would have to be negotiating how we're going to deal with that. Um, interesting point about foreign workers. Obviously, um, there are a lot of players in Major League Baseball who are not from the United States. Uh, they are all on work visas if they are not citizens. Obviously, a lot of them become citizens. Uh, but uh, the ones on work visas, their visas are still good. But there are reasons that I don't really understand that they kind of need to be in the country on December 1st when the lockout begins in order for their visas to remain good. Um, and that's immigration law that I am not just not an expert in. Um, and they did uh, also outline some goals in negotiation. And I was I was uh, I was frankly really encouraged by this um, uh, one was uh, incentivizing competition. Uh, in terms of, uh, and I've, I've mentioned this is kind of what I think should be goal number one, really, of um, changing the rule set. You know, I, I've, I've always talked, again, I worked for a team that tanked, but I was always a, a big believer in don't hate the player, hate the game. And I think you need to change the game and create a rule set that incentivizes teams to put their best product on the field. Um, and that sounds like it'll be a key goal for them. Uh, reducing artificial constraints, which is their term. Um, primarily things like the, the CBT, the competitive balance tax, as well as pick compensation, uh, and then raising the bar for younger players in terms of compensation. So we'll see where it goes. I still feel like chances are really good that opening day will happen. Um, but I don't, I, you know, it's going to be, it's going to be kind of a shitty winter. Yeah, it's, it's just, it, it is inevitably going to be ugly because I don't think these parties are capable of doing anything that isn't at this point. And with good reason, I don't think the players have any reason to trust Rob Manfred or the owners to have their best interests in mind or have even any interests in mind that are not specifically the owners. Uh, I will be very interested to see, obviously, the, the, the thing that draws my, that draws my eye beyond, I mean, all, all this stuff is good, and I, and, I, and I think it's good, and I appreciate the fact that, you know, like you said, the, the union has been hoarding this money for a while now. They've understood that this was a very realistic outcome. They've been preparing for it. The vibe I've gotten is that the union has made it abundantly clear to members over the last couple of years that this is going to be a this fight. This is coming, yeah. This is, this is not something that they are going to do quickly. This is something, and that, and that's, I think, what drew my attention to the the goals in negotiation, because those are goals that are going to take a significant fight. Like, they don't mm. really sound like that much on the surface. I mean, incentivizing competition, I mean, that, vague, obviously. I know the, the PA has talked a lot about a salary floor, about wanting to do that. I am skeptical that's going to work the way they want to but it's very clear that teams are taking advantage of the need to spend or not the need but the ability to spend less and less and less i mean we have teams now that are running payrolls that would not have looked out of place 20 years ago which is really really not right the i mean it's funny the qualify like the qualifying offer stuff which they walked into face first in the last cba and now would like to back out of please if that's possible I, i just like these are all good things. I just know that the owners are likely to give up none of them without some significant uh, something, yeah. something exchange. I, I, right. I think the the main thing that the players have to give the owners, and they're going to give it to them at some point, but their main, the, their big chip they're holding is, is we'll do expanded playoffs. I think it's expanded playoffs in part. I th- I do wonder if this is when they finally crack on the international draft. Um, it's coming. Yeah, it's, it's I, I just I feel it like is. it is an inevitability. It's yeah. very, it's been clear for a while that the PA does not care one cent about 
the guys who are not in the MLBPA for right. And so I do think you're right. That's disparity another reasons. Uh, you know, um, it's it's something they feel like they can give away without hurting themselves, but it's something that they're going to hold on to very tight because it's what the owners want so very very badly. Right. Teams teams themselves. You talk about international draft. Teams are very much a a a when and not an if. It's gone. Yeah. It's, it's, it's crossed that line for sure. Yeah. And I and I think that's kind of the case with a lot of these things because ultimately the PA has just had so little leverage in all of this because as always their greatest leverage is the threat of a walkout and the threat of a strike and the threat of, of, of a labor stoppage. But they also know that as with any other, you know, organized union that, that threatens a strike, that that is the move of last resort. And that's not a card you just play and leave on the table. It's a card you play when you intend to, to play it. Like you, it is not an empty threat. You do it when you actually want to do it. So that, that's just going to be hard for them. I think the one, obviously, and I, and I you know, I'm, I'm not a labor expert by any means, and since you just had Evan who on, who knows way more about this than I do, I'm sure this was a, a spirited conversation in that regard. But I, I do just think it probably comes down to some element of, I mean, I, I think, too, we're going to get opening day at some point. I think it'll be a later opening day. I think we're probably end up going to missing end up oh, missing yeah. like three or four weeks of the season. That would mm. be my bet. I do think the thing that keeps the owners from going full um, work stoppage, lock the players out, do whatever you guys want, is the fact that they did have to take, a you know, every every one of the numbers comes with a, a grain of salt the size of a boulder, but... Oh, let's just call it, they took a relative bath. Yeah, they took a haircut, let's call it. They took a financial haircut the last two seasons because of COVID, with no fans. Um, I'm sure that, for the most part, they are all doing A-okay, but I have to imagine a lot of them do not have the stomach for a third season of limited fans and right. or lost games. I and I think too, and, and this is what I've what I've told people when they've asked me about it, and I think it's the most important thing of it all. Ninety four hangs over everyone involved in this so heavy, because especially because uh, Manfred was obviously a part of that uh, negotiating effort. A lot of those owners were around for ninety four. They understand the sheer cataclysm that would happen if they let a ninety four happen again. They yeah, can't afford it. The sport it, can't afford it. They cannot let it happen. And I'm 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 a firm believer, and and I'm not the first to say this, and I would not be the first to really get burned by saying it. That's just there's just kind of too much money for this to fall apart. There is. This is a ten billion dollar revenue organization at this point. More than that, probably ten billion dollars was as of like three or four years ago. I mean, even yeah. with COVID, they're they're making probably fifteen billion dollars a year. Expansion is a possibility. They have expanded playoffs as a possibility. You know, they're they're making money hand over fist. Players are making players are getting bigger contracts than ever, and the and the size of the pie still has not really changed. You know, there there is a lot of money that they can that the owners can hand over um, if push comes to shove. Right, and so if forget about if when this happens, and we'll obviously talk about it next week because next week will be uh, the show will be recorded on December second, and we'll be locked out. Um, but once that happens, um, it's going to be pretty quiet for a while. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't think there's see no any there's until mid January. Right. Because there's no anything to happen, just in the sense that um, players would not be getting paid anyway. Yeah. Um, there's no games. There's no. There's no revenue streams really for baseball. It's because it's the off season. Um, no major streams, at least. And so all of a sudden, um, there's just kind of there's no there's no leverage yet. No one has any leverage yet. Yeah, and I also think it it takes advantage of the fact that that. Um, I mean, I know December does get does obviously the winter meetings get get things busy for a little bit, although that's been kind of on and off the last few years. But I think it also definitely takes advantage of the fact that from post winter meetings through the Hall of Fame election, there's really not a whole lot that happens baseball wise. Like the whole sport just kind of goes to sleep for a month. Right, and um, you know, after the winter meetings, and you know, probably somewhere in the between the fifteenth and the twentieth, um, like even front offices kind of shut it down for the year. 
Yeah, I know um, there's the non-tender deadline at some mm. point in there. I forget exactly what date, but that, that, that to me feels like the last real bit of major league stuff it until is. we get to the end of January and all of a sudden we're looking around and going, hey, why are there still like nine top free agents on sign? Like, why is Max Scherzer not have a team yet? <laughs> um, let's get into emails, John. All right. We asked you for your emails. You sent your emails. Send your emails anyway. We're going to do emails every week. It's chin music at fangraphs.com and thank you so much to everyone for sending so many emails um including i don't know why this prompted this but like just so many just really fucking nice emails about how much people like the show no question just like how much they like the show and how much the show means to them and they were actually really really very touching and thank you for those we have three email categories we have baseball emails we have non-baseball emails and i thought we would only have two but then we have a third which is if you listen to the show last week and you heard Hannah Kaiser's uh, ludicrous total bases ball idea. We have three emails about that because it generated a lot of discussion. Uh, let's start at the top of the baseball emails. Our first email comes from Fuzz. That's what he said his name was. I'm not going to argue with it. Fuzz. Sounds like a it's, a, it's a very good, like, street-level dealer name. I like it. it. And it becomes even more of a street level deal level dealer because it's fuzz with one Z. Yeah, it's got real like yeah. tertiary wire character it's vibes. Got, to it's it. got street cred. Dude who gets offed like halfway through season three by the by the new right. guys on the block. Right. Have you seen Fuzz? I haven't seen Fuzz for days, and then yeah. they find him like yeah, yeah he's uh, boarded in, up in the row yeah, house. Boarded up in a row house. Apologies probably. to people who are twenty years late on that show. <laughs> <laughs> Spoiler alert on the wire. Yeah. Um <laughs> Fuzz says, if a top prospect is traded twice or more before reaching the major leagues, is this a red flag? I'm even older than Kevin, and maybe my perspective is colored by decades. The narrative where bad makeup guy has great skills and gets passed along before this is widely known. Um, It goes both ways, Fuzz. Um, There are, I hate to bring this guy up as an example, but like it's it's a very real world example. It's a real quote. Someone said to me, um, this was when uh, Trevor Bauer was just seen as a shithead and not a criminal. Um, but when he was simply a shithead, um, I remember someone telling me, you know, you got there's a reason that a guy with this much ability is on his third team before he reaches free agency. Um, and there was, and that was because he's a shithead. Um, but there are also the opposite, where simply um, guys get traded twice just because they're really good and so they're much desired in trade talks and so it, it kind of goes back both ways i would not automatically read into a guy getting traded a lot as being a shithead but it's fair to ask the question oh i wonder if he's a shithead and maybe doing some research yeah i mean the guys i mean the guys you always see and it's obviously not top prospects but it's funny because i've you know been writing up bp annual blurbs and i wrote up uh jordan yamamoto's for the mets and that guy's on his third team already yeah. in four years which of course is not nearly his fault that's just the, the way the system operates but like he was a well-regarded prospect for the Brewers, and now you know he bounced the Marlins, then he bounced the Mets. But that doesn't seem to have anything to do with him, and more the fact that, one, he's been injured, and that tends to take a lot of the luster off and turn you from mm-hmm. prospect to just kind of waiver-wire guy. And two, I just feel like those are the kinds of guys who are going to get moved multiple times before they really establish their career anyway, because every team always wants a dude they can stock in AAA who can throw four or five innings if they need it in an and emergency. And has interesting pitch data, like maybe he'll figure yeah. something out with it. and um, yeah. Often players are upset when they get traded and, and, you know, at times you tell them, look, this means someone really wanted you. Someone really liked you. Um, or it's an opportunity somewhere else where you're not blocked or where there's a different, right. you know, a different voice or something. It can even, and I also imagine this is probably the case, too, for the kids who get signed out of the Dominican at 16 years old. I mean, the, the odds are probably pretty good they're going to get traded more than once before they make it to the majors anyway because their path is so long in the first place. Right, often. And, 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 and keep in mind that, you know, almost half those kids never get off the island. 
Yeah. So I yeah I, I agree with you. I don't think it necess- I don't think it immediately means everybody watch out, but I it, it does. It's a fair question to ask. It is a fair question because it's yeah just... it it and Bauer does seem like a good example of that because it's like you know there's never been any doubt about what he could do. It's always how long until the team with him decided I don't want to deal with this headache anymore. Right, which has happened. Which has um, happened <laughs> before? Before uh, I mean the, the more disturbing stuff. The fact that it took all of I mean I know it was it was right before the deadline anyway when it happened, but the fact that Cleveland dealt him pretty much immediately after that whole turnaround and fling a ball into center field, followed by Terry Francona coming out. And I love that you could read on his lips Terry Francona asking him straight up, "What the fuck is wrong with you?" Before pulling him <laughs> from that game, that was, really just said a lot right. about where Cleveland had already kind of landed on the Trevor Bauer. Question. Right. It made me wonder how many times Terry Francona asked him that question without cameras in front of him. Yeah, I would guess at least four or five times a week. I that, that does that does not seem like a good match of player and and, and manager. Like, I don't think Trevor Bauer is a cribbage type. I don't think he's he's no. he likes doing prank wars. Nope, nope. Um, next email comes from Tony. Tony says on a recent ish episode, either you or your illustrious guest made reference to the quality of an individual at bat, and this made me wonder: Are teams coming up with ways to quantify such a quality? It would seem to me that a very simplistic way of looking at it would be if a hitter either got a barrel or took a walk and then the at-bat was good. But you could probably find a way to boil that down to a stat you could use to compare players or even flip around and look at which pitchers have the best quality at-bats against, etc. Teams definitely have metrics that measure quality at-bats and all of those are um, not based necessarily on barrels or walks, but based on um, pitch-by-pitch swing decisions. Um, there's a it's it's there's it's it's like machine learning in a way and and there are you know very much like here's the pitch this was the count this was the situation um and swing no swing and if you swung it's it's plus this if it's no swing it's minus this you know if you should have swung and or should not have swung based on the pitch it's really uh, so teams are definitely measuring the quality of bats but all of it's based on swing decisions as opposed to the result of the at bat so if it's a if it's like a machine learning thing, does that mean that after each swing, the little little picture pops up on a laptop somewhere, and some human being in the front office has to like click all the squares where you should have swung? No, it's all to help like to help the computer learn. Like, oh, yeah. that's where you should have swung. No, that happens in the that's off a season. boat. <laughs> that happens in the off season, but yeah, I mean, it, there's it's... just a random traffic light in the middle of the at bat. <laughs> yep, most teams have some sort of live game viewer. Um, okay. Uh, I, the Astros had one. I've talked to plenty of other teams who have one, and you, I, there are plenty of people in um, in their office or in the suite or whatever, or I've seen or in the stands with it open on their phones. Um, that's like a live game viewer. It's showing you kind of the track man for every pitch. It's showing you um, where it was, uh, whether they should have swung or not, what happened, all sorts of stuff. See, what do guys who make odd swing decisions that work out how they must mm. break that all the time like i, I know yuli guriel is not someone i'd say has odd swing decisions but he's certainly a guy who is a I, yeah he's the cl- unique the, he's unique in that regard yeah he started walking for the first time ever this year and at one point er, very early in his career um like the teams have meetings with players every in spring training like hey here's things we think you should work on and here's things we think about this and um yuli actually said like no one's ever told me to walk <laughs> you know i've never heard this before um well, of course not <laughs> right exactly um, like, that's yeah I, mean, I just find that but i just find that funny a guy like yuli gurio who can take a a ball in a part of the plate he shouldn't be swinging at and put a swing on it where you're looking and going what the right, and then and it somehow it turns the into line. a base hit and you're like okay you gotta gotta just turn everybody else you see what he did 
don't do that. Right, don't do that. It worked and, for him. Don't do that. It's everything about him is like that. Like the way yeah. he swings a baseball bat. Like no pitching, no hitting teacher ever would teach anyone to no, swing a bat. Like, like all of the same like go, Kevin Euclid and and, mm-hmm. and Tony Batista were the first time they did that. You have to imagine a coach going where and how and you know what that worked for you. Just keep on doing that. Right. I, you know, uh, Vladimir Guerrero Senior. Yeah. Dad was the ultimate bad ball hitter. Um, horrible swing decisions, and you didn't care because he hit 320 with 40 every year. Yeah, and I guess that's where the the marriage of that hyper advanced. Because I figured there was some kind of hyper, not even hyper advanced, but this very granular way of looking at the at bats probably sure. runs into something like someone at the top of the chain going, "I don't care if he swings at all these terrible pitches. Look what <laughs> right. he does when he connects." Yeah, and the, at the end you take the results. Yeah. Um, our next email is from Neil. Neil's in Devon, England, by the way. Hmm. I don't know where that is, but uh, it's, I know country, it's in England. I believe. Wait, do you actually know ge- England geography? Uh, not really. I know that London's in the southeast. I know that everything from Manchester north is the north. I know that every part of the west of England just seems to be a giant field mm-hmm. with sheep and, and rocks and windswept areas and kind of funny accents. But I know that Devon is over on the western side of England, I believe. If, if Neil is listening, my apologies if I've mislabeled your, your verdant corner of Albion. My mistake. <laughs> Neil says, Dear KG and John, because you said it was John. It is John. I may have had one Negro Modelo too many, but I despair at the sight of the recently released Hall of Fame shortlist. Of course, there are no surprises. It's time for A-Rod and Big Poppy and the other poor saps who may have good causes but will largely be ignored. And of course, this is all nonsense, but here's my question. KG has maintained an argument for the Hall of Famous, I believe, and the older I get, the more I agree. Do you know my Hall of Famous argument? No, but I can get the general vibe that it's guys who are... It's a Q factor. I think the Hall yeah. of Fame is a is a museum celebrating the history and cultural re- relevance of baseball. And so people and should be people who have had the biggest impact on the history and cultural relevance of baseball. I think... Bo Jackson and Daryl Strawberry should be in the Hall of Fame, and I don't think Burp Lylevin should be in. Oof, spicy. Because you think, think about important baseball figures of the 80s, which is the baseball I grew up in, it's Bo Jackson and Daryl Strawberry a hell of a lot more than Burp Lylevin. Sure. Um, to go on, uh, Neil continues. I should read this in a British accent. Uh, you simply can't ignore Pete Rose, Roger Clemens, or Barry Bonds in the history of the game. They have to be shoe-ins to the Hall of Fame, and frankly, so do A-Rod and Big Poppy, the great Jay Jaffe knows and cares. Anyway, open the door and let him in, but let's have a hole of arseholes, too. He said arseholes because he's British. You can find a better word, I'm sure. I'm angry and Anglo-Saxon, but put Bonds, Clemens, and Rose in both. You move the argument around 180 degrees. Yes, you're in the hall, but come on, we know, and we'll pop you into both. Let's move the conversation on from who is or isn't in the Hall of Fame. Baseball greatness grants you an entry into Cooperstown, but online madness sends you to the Hall of Arseholes. Hall of Arseholes, what do you think, John? So, first of all, I don't think we can think of a better word because, for the most part, Anglo-Saxons have invented pretty much all of the good curse words because they just <laughs> they really just made a habit of just jamming two bad words together and just yelling them as loud as they can. So, maybe if I knew French or Italian swearing, I'd toss them in there, but, mm. you know, I think Arseholes is good. So... The Hall of Fame is saying, like, I, I I understand what you're saying, and I agree to a certain point. I do think it's worth noting that uh, part of that is just the, you know, the way time literally works. But the 1980s 
are very underrepresented in the Hall of Fame when it mm-hmm. comes to guys who were enshrined. A lot of the players who were big then or famous, yeah, a lot of them made it in, but a good chunk of them did not. And a lot of the, and a lot of my generation too, the guys who were in the 1990s and the guys who now are all over this ballot now, who whose careers ended um, in the mid-ish to late 2010, no, 2000s, whatever we want to call, whatever that 2000s is called. They are also underrepresented because of the sheer backlog of candidates that have been left on the ballot for years and years and years because the BBWA, well, not to be fair, not entirely the BBWA, a lot of this is the hall just refusing to make this process better or simpler, not either not con- either not reducing that backlog or putting its thumb on the scale to make the backlog even worse when it came to the steroid guys. I do wonder if this would be this a similar situation if not for the steroid stuff. If just all these guys just happen to land at the same time, and the the hall with its its mindset of we want a pure form of baseball just kind of looked at and went no 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 we're just going to paper over this entire chapter in history and just kind of forget it was there. Obviously, that's not the holistic way I think to treat baseball history, which does have to recognize the bad among the good. Your Hall of Fame proponents would argue, well, that's what the Hall of Fame Museum is for. And in fact, that is what the Hall of Museum or the Hall of Fame Museum does. It gives you a nice, tidy overview of baseball history, both good and bad, featuring all the prominent names and, and major folks you would expect. But I, re- I remember even when I did, I've done the museum now two or three times. I can't remember how many times I've been. But I remember even then when you go to it, I remember one year I went and there was a very big uh, exhibit about Hank Aaron, which was all it was missing was the subhead baseball's true home run king. You could really see why <laughs> Hank Aaron was being celebrated in a particular way, which to me also feels very disrespectful to Hank Aaron just in and of itself that we have yeah. to like prop him up in that way as like he wasn't Barry Bonds. It's like who cares? He was whatever. It's that's my own particular problem. But I do think and I do think and this is something I've noticed in the museum that those that that particular 80s and 90s stretch is not particularly well represented in there yet. Part of that is because we're just not that far away from that period of time, although it's kind of weird to think the 1982 season is now 40 years 40 years behind us. But at the same time, it's just not, it doesn't seem like it's particularly well curated in that regard. I remember the Bonds' home run title is memorized in part, or memorialized in part, by one of the balls he hit that Todd McFarlane bought at auction and then carved an asterisk into, or whatever it was exactly he right. did. That doesn't really feel like a fair assessment of Barry Bonds and the home run title and the right. home run race. I don't think there is anything wrong with saying or having some kind of display that says these are the guys who did this a lot. Like, I don't know, maybe you don't want to say in a museum a lot of but like just acknowledge that that was a period full of performance enhancing drugs. But the problem with that is then the hall also needs to acknowledge why were there so many performance enhancing drugs in baseball? Because Major League Baseball's leadership did not care one single iota about players using performance-enhancing drugs up until the point where they were forced to do something by the sheer embarrassment of the sport, losing records to guys whose heads looked like mini-fridges. Well, let me ask you a question, speaking of guys whose heads look like mini-fridges. I was thinking about like this new ballot and how David Ortiz, whose association to steroids is, is, um, is there, but frankly, a little shitty. It's just it's like, yes, that one New York Times article with the guys who tested positive in some sort of like and the and that Manfred in came some out sort and of said, test test of test thing. Yeah, and that Manfred came out and said we shouldn't take those at their word anyway because it wasn't a real it wasn't a real test. What whatever it was, I, I right. It was a little but, weird when he came out and said that specifically because it just felt like he was trying to say no, no, no. David Ortiz is fine. You can vote for David Ortiz. I don't care. But he seems to have survived. 
he has um, like the steroids world in in a way that um, Clemens Bonds probably a Rod have not. And I wonder if he's going to kind of overcome. I I I predict he's going to overcome that because people like him so much. I think he makes it in, and I think that is a really, really big part of it. And I think you could almost see that that was the same path A-Rod was trying to take, the post-career redemption of, like, if I make people like me enough, they'll just forget about all the bad things I did. Mm-hmm. Uh, A-Rod's problem, of course, is the, the, the uh, scar, excuse me, the biogenesis suspension that probably puts a nail right. in his coffin just permanently. Like, And that people, frankly, I mean, let's face it, there is a popularity aspect to Hall of Fame voting. People don't like him. People like people David don't Ortiz. like him. People have people don't like him. People do like David Ortiz, and he's also the author of some of the most iconic postseason moments in the game's history. And th- I think there is enough of this of a steroid distance that guys who, at the same time, you know, look at Bonds and Clemens and go, "No way, no, no how," can go with Ortiz and be like, "Look, he never failed a test. His only exposure was his 2003 list that the commissioner himself has said is not bogus, but not something we should really it's give sketchy. all that much weight to." Yeah. He's a great ambassador off the field. He's a, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I, I think that all makes up for it enough. Yeah, I I don't know. I mean, it's very clear that the voters are not going to put Roger Clemens and Barry Bonds in. Those guys mm-hmm. are just never going to get in via that route. It's probably going to be this, like Sammy Sosa is never getting in via that route. Gary Sheffield is probably never going to get in via that route, which is especially unfair because Sheffield never failed a test or anything. Right. Um, and it's going to be really interesting to see if the Veterans Committee has any interest in dealing with those guys. My guess is not for a long time. Yeah, my guess is no. Given the way that they just punted Mark McGuire aside. And granted, McGuire has a much weaker Hall of Fame case than Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens do. But I think that was an easy window into how they see the steroids guys even off the ballot, which is to be said, which is to say they don't really want them around anyway. They don't want that on the Hall of Fame. I mean, just the fact that they put out the Joe Morgan letter when they did the explicit please do not vote for for steroid for guys who are uh steroids connected just really makes me think that you know, hall of fame hall of assholes whatever you want to call it they're just never going to be a full part of what the baseball hall of fame is because baseball has just decided as a collective institution we're going to cover our eyes about everything that happened between about 1995 and 2003 and you can't make us do anything otherwise about it Mm-hmm. And they really can't, because unless the Hall of Fame undergoes a, a change in management and wants to grapple accurately and honestly, as museums should, with the reality of what baseball was like in the 90s and with the reality that the Major League Baseball let the steroid era happen by not testing and not really caring what guys are putting into their bodies until it was way too late, I don't really see how the Hall ever makes space for them in a way that isn't something like that Here's Barry Bonds' home run ball, but with the asterisk carved into it so that you remember he was a big old cheater. Right. That just really seems to be the, the main takeaway for me when it comes to those guys with the way the Hall treats them. Is it just wants everyone to be aware they're cheaters. They it's, cheated. They're bad. Right. And it's, I don't think they're ever going to make space for them even if you do acknowledge that. I don't think even if Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens came out and said tomorrow, yes, we took steroids. It was a huge mistake. We're very sorry. We've disgraced whatever stupid apology gets written for them by somebody. I still don't think the Hall would ever want anything. Even more so, the Hall would now have the built-in excuse. See, they did it. Now we don't ever have to let them in. I I just don't, for whatever reason, I think steroids is just the, it it is the spot on, on the game in recent history that the game itself will not accept and will not overlook and will just try to brush aside as quickly and as, and as violently as possible. Yeah, I mean, it does at times feel like the Hall of Fame is selling you on a fantasy version of baseball. It very much is. It wants you to believe in baseball as the national pastime. and the, I mean, granted, game. 
Yeah, and granted, they they've straight they've they no longer play the silly kind of history game of oh, invented by Abner Doubleday in 1864 because obviously that was all bunk in the first place. But the fact that it's still in Cooperstown, you know, as as part of that whole mythos, yeah, it does tell you that the Baseball Hall of Fame is not about an uh an what was the word I was going to use here? It's not about a purely historical look at baseball. It's about the baseball that they want to display. And I mean, for that reason, that Pete. I mean, it's funny that Pete Rose doesn't get him because Pete Rose spends all of induction weekend hanging around Cooperstown anyway, and right. just, which is just so bleakly sad on so many levels. But I, I do think that they do reserve a space where if you break one of those cardinal sins of baseball, you bet on the game, you take steroids, you you know you you throw game, whatever it is, you're just never getting in. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you did because we're not going to let the reality of what insane levels of competition and what insane borderline sociopathic competitors do in those spaces to infringe upon the dream that we have cast of baseball, which is Roger Maris and Hank Aaron. To be true, like, they don't even acknowledge, like, the Hank Aaron thing barely acknowledges the racist nonsense he went through in the in the process of trying to break Babe Ruth's record. Right. You know, Roger Maris doesn't get acknowledged as someone that that home run chase nearly killed him in the process. Baseball doesn't really do a good job of acknowledging the ways in which baseball fails and the ways in which baseball struggles and the ways in which baseball is just flat out bad to its best players and over the course of its endless, endless history. And I don't really see anything changing, especially when it comes to guys like Bonds and Clemens, who are just both surly dicks about everything, and Rose, who is just a pathetic, uh, just gladhander at this point. Like, that's kind of the other thing. Those guys don't have... They don't have the outside push that a guy like, an, obviously totally different scenarios, but a guy like an Edgar Martinez or a Tim Raines would have, where they had fans on the outside who right. loved them and loved what they did and who they were, it just doesn't exist for those guys. Like right. Even for even for me as a Red Sox fan, like, yeah, Roger Clemens belongs in the Hall of Fame. Am I going to take a significant degree of schadenfreude out of knowing that he will never walk into the Hall of Fame as an inductee? Yes, I will, because Roger <laughs> Clemens is a piece of trash, and I have... No problem with the fact... I have no problem trying to make those contradictory thoughts work in my head. <laughs> Sorry if you were trying to get Roger Clemens on this podcast at any point. I was not. But, uh, uh, boy, that guy's a real piece of trash. Yeah, like, like he listens anyway. Yeah, that's um, true. Like he can read. Our next email now now we're getting into defamatory territory. <laughs> it's, just, it's, just, it's gone to, Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Happy holidays. Uh, you can't agree that Roger Clemens is a bad person. Like... <laughs> I, I, this is a funny story. Um, I, I <laughs> maybe I shouldn't tell. I'm going to tell us. Okay. So, um, when you're drafting players, uh, what, there's a whole player profile on like an MLB internal server, mm-hmm. and it has all this information about the player, including their home address. And I would always look at their at their houses, <laughs> just because I could. I would Google map their houses and go. Ah. Look at that kid. He comes from money. Um, and I just remember um, when, like, the Clemens kids were draft eligible, I Google mapped the house. Like, I tell you, it's pretty big. Yeah, I can. I'm not surprised. I, one, yeah. I bet it has, like, his initials in a wrought iron <laughs> like gate. Like an RC? Yeah. yeah. Or, or it's rocket. just a K. Or just a, a K. rocket. Or a yeah. All of his kids have the K names, right? Yeah, yes. If Absolutely. that doesn't tell you enough about Roger Clemens in and of itself... The story I always loved was him throwing at one of his kids in a spring training um, <laughs> intra-squad game. That dude's a psychopath. That's the thing. These guys are all psychopaths. They're all going to do whatever it takes to win. And for a long period of time, baseball is like, yeah, do literally whatever you want in the pursuit of winning. And then once they found out that these guys had just injected themselves with like East German level steroids, we're like, oh, wait, no, not that, though. That, that, that was the one thing we definitely didn't want you to do. 
We probably should have said something about that, but we were too busy trying to screw players out of money through endless bouts of collusion, essentially. Our next email comes from Patrick, and it's a palate cleanser. Yes, and not Patrick, about Roger Clemens. And Patrick says, since it's Thanksgiving, I've been trying to spend time on what I've been thankful for recently, especially since there's so much not to be thankful for these days. And I started thinking about a former colleague who passed away early in the pandemic. When I started my current job a few years ago, she was incredibly generous with her time, opinions, and institutional knowledge, and things would have been much rougher for me without her being equal parts sounding board and oracle. When you joined the Astros and had to orient yourself to the internal culture of a Major League Baseball team, was there someone like that who you're still thankful for? Yes, there is, Patrick. Um, and I'm not I'm fine saying it. It's David Stearns. Um, David uh, joined the Astros just a, a, a few months after I did. Um and, and David was uh, both sounding board and oracle for me, um, kind of knew how things work and, and, and also like showed me it was possible um, to do what you do in Major League Baseball and still try to have a heart. Um, David's a really good dude. I root, for, I root for him and I root for Milwaukee. That's nice. Something I'm curious about since you brought up uh, David Sturgeon, since I have no uh, Major League Baseball person who got me into Major League Baseball because I was never in Major League Baseball. Something, I, and I found this funny, and I I wonder how much of it even is based in any kind of reality, but when the Mets hired uh, Billy Epler, a lot was made by some of the beats about how Epler and Stearns are, are apparently very good friends, I, mm. I, I suppose. To me, that just felt kind of silly, because I was like, so is the implication here that because Billy Epler and David Stearns are friends, that one day in the foreseeable future, Epler will reach out and be like, hey, David, how would you like to come take my job? Yeah, that was the thing. Like, There's all sorts of talk like before the Epler hire about how they were just going to like sit in a year and wait for not my, I have no idea what David's contract status actually is and you know and, and wait for you know David's contract to run out and go after him and someone else I can't remember offhand who it was um but I don't believe that anymore I think that yeah. might have been I think that might have been ban- you know bandied about at some point but like you know Billy Epler's not going to take the job knowing that they're going to bring someone in a year on Yeah top I, of I just I just I guess I was curious in that regard like yeah. I know that the personal relationships obviously can make a huge difference when it comes to making a transaction or simply just doing the business of major league baseball. But I can't imagine that there is a level of friendship deep enough where you just start hiring away your friends from other places, including to replace you. Right. And just build, like, I don't, I don't, maybe this is uh, delightfully naive of me, but I'd like to think that major league baseball front offices don't operate that much like a frat house or a fortune 500 company just kind of like a frat house or a fortune 500 company in that regard sometimes very like one okay um, i mean I, yeah it's, that's, but, that's but, like i said know, delightfully naive on my part but i know you haven't worked for a team but is there is there someone you can think of in your career who was an important uh someone you're thankful for as far as kind of getting you going in the right direction quicker or better um i mean there were definitely professors in journalism school the, the one year i did of that who were where did you go to journalism school i went to columbia journalism school and there's there's a professor there michael shapiro is just a great professor who just makes you think about the act of journalism writing less about the nuts and bolts of it and more just about what it is all kind of supposed to mean generally mm-hmm. the, the thing i always kind of t- there are two things i always took away from one was the concept of no matter what it is like if you're debating whether or not to go anywhere really for a story or for a report just go just go and do it and see what you find instead of just sitting around hemming and hawing and the other one was that a, no matter what the topic you know every story could always be basically about another story you know a crime story is also uh, an education story is also a business story is also a you know whatever it happens to be it's never just a crime story it's never just 
a baseball story. There's always something more to it going beyond that. Unfortunately, when it comes to mentors within the professional realm, journalism is really bad about letting people have careers that are long enough nowadays to become mentors. <laughs> and also with the constant churn, but definitely before getting into it, I, I, you know, and I think that's the most important time really to get that mindset anyways, before you even start doing the stuff is like before you, before you get kind of ground down with the nuts and bolts and just remember like what the point of this all is or how this is all theoretically, ideally, at least supposed to work before, you know before before it doesn't always work that way so right um next email comes from dominic dominic says why do so many folks seem to think that defense does not or cannot slump it's never made sense to me it seems to be a relatively popular thought and one of the reasons why folks don't trust defensive metrics nagging injuries bad luck with bad ball velocities or angles changes in positioning hot cold wind etc they can change every day and if timing can go off on hitting and pitching could it not do the same in the field? It seems unreasonable to think that someone's defense should have little to no beta. Dominic, thank you. Absolutely. People just think a guy's a plus short top and he's always going to be a plus. Guys have good and bad defensive seasons. There's no question about it. Guys get out of whack. Um, sometimes it's like quite obvious. You think about Jose Altuve in the 2020 postseason with the throwing problems. And sometimes it's not as noticeable. And it's just like, Man, the footwork's a little weird, and or or his first step's a little late, and, and it's not what we're not used to seeing. And then it comes back. Um, you know, Carlos Correa just had his best defensive year. Um, made a really good year. I don't think he'll always be that good. I think he'll always be good, but not always that good. Definitely, guys have good and bad defensive years, just like they have bad and good offensive years. And you're right; people think defense is static and offense is variable, and that's just not the case. I mean, guys have good and bad days. I'll always remember the day Ted Williams died. No Mar Garcia Parra made two errors, I think, at shortstop that day. And, the you know, the talk for... He had been close with Ted Williams for a while before his death. I remember mm -hmm. the 99 All-Star game. They had a real moment together. And I, it was really easy to assume, yeah, his head is probably not fully on this baseball game right now. He's probably thinking about the guy who died who was his friend. Right. That stuff obviously matters. And, I mean, for me, the, 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 the thing about defensive numbers that I've always found kind of hard to... to to grok or to get my head around, I suppose, is the fact that they can be so variable because there are so many things happening just within the right. concept of defense itself and how we measure it that it's kind of impossible to get a, what's the best way to put this, a stable, permanent view of a guy's defense beyond the guys who we know are just exceptional defenders year in and year out like Andrelton and Simmons. And even they have steps back at some point because, like you said, they get hurt. They have issues. They have hitches. You know, guys they have bad, develop. They have bad luck. They have bad luck. You know, if you're, you can be a great shortstop, but if you get stuck with a bad first baseman, how many of your low throws that normally get dug out are going to mm. go for errors that are going to go on you probably? Right. Or going to make you look worse? Or if you're a, I mean, the the easy one is always like the third baseman who had to play next to Derek Jeter. Like, he's killing you defensively in right. some capacities. Better be ready because to go of his, your left. Yeah, because of his sheer in a, his sheer lack of range, but. Regardless, yeah, I, I think for me the concept of defense don't slump is less about guys, you know, are not, it's less about guys can never be bad defenders, and more to me it always, it feels like just because a guy is in an offensive slump does not necessarily mean his defense will suffer with it, and that there are guys who are remarkably consistent on other sides of the ball, even when their offense kind of, to me the, the golden example of that has always felt like Mookie Betts who even when he's not producing the same way he would, you know, you'd expect him to offensively, he is always such a stable defensive presence. And I think that probably is some it says tons endless amounts about his sheer mental willpower mm. and just the fact that he can seemingly block out the bad stuff that happens just be like, "Well, I'm just going to go focus on this thing." 
you know, that my struggles in one area do not compound my other problem or my other uh, facets. Right. So I, I believe in that so much as like if you show a consistent talent level, I think it's less about defense doesn't slump and more about you're a pretty good defender, so we're going to expect pretty good things out of you. And even when you are going bad offensively, we can still count on you to be a good defender at the same time. Yeah, and, and it's, it's you know, back when I did this 10 years ago, I used to say I don't trust defensive metrics and I don't think they're very good. And you know what, John? It's 10 years later. The way we look at baseball and the way we measure and the way we evaluate players has changed more dramatically than I could ever anticipate. And you know what? I still don't trust defensive metrics. Just... I still don't think they're good at all. Well, it's hard because at the end of the day, there's still it, there's still metrics that are being set up by human beings. They're like, still super messy. I know someone who, like, I, I honestly think he's one of the or best. set up and charted by. Human yeah, I think he's by. one of the best analysts in all of baseball. I think he's one of the best kind of statistical advanced minds in all of baseball. Um, and he built the defensive model, and there were the numbers, and he said, "Yeah, that's what it says. And I don't really like it." I was like, "Yeah, okay. I mean, I I yeah, always look at those numbers it. like something like outs for outs above average is less about oh I can con- convince or uh, confidently say rather that." Based on outs above average, Jackie Bradley Jr. is the best center fielder since Mickey Mantle or something. It's more than just like, I, I like using those numbers just kind of as a benchmark for, oh, if you're in this, you know, if you're consistently doing this according to these numbers, then something is probably going right here. And if you're consistently bad by these numbers, that probably says something in it on its own too. Right. But otherwise, right. like those those year-by-year variations, it just don't really mean anything ultimately. Yeah, it's really hard. Um, next email comes from Tanner. Tanner has a question about telephones. Tanner says, for years, I've been mildly curious about the phones in Major League Dugouts. They are helpfully labeled, and I still have questions. I understand the need to call folks in the bullpen, the video room, the clubhouse. Why the press box? Is the bench coach explaining an injury replacement to beat reporters in the middle of a game? Tanner, I just question. There's a phone that connects the dugout to the press box? There is, and I know the answer why. I know the answer why. So, um... I, I would bet that this will apply to 95% of, of, of people listening to this podcast, and, and, and I'm sure it'll include you as well. Mm. Um, you're watching baseball on your television, yeah. as and, you, and you're scrolling through Twitter on your phone or on your laptop. It's like you're looking into my living room. Exactly. And you're watching, uh, we're just gonna, I'm going to make it up, okay? Right. You're watching the Yankees game. Okay. Uh, I actually can't because I'm not a cable subscriber here in New York. But continue. You're watching the Yankees game on MLB Network. No, you're not cable. I actually can't because it, that's right. Is, you you're watching the I Yankees am, game I am on a, from the Yankees entirely unless they are on ESPN. You're watching the Yankees on ESPN. There we go. Muted, so I don't have to listen to A Rod. In the second inning, Aaron Judge uh, dives for a ball and seems kind of shaken up. Stays in the game, and then he, when he comes up in the third inning, he's pinch hit for. Hmm. And you're watching the game and you're scrolling through Twitter. And all of a sudden, six Yankees beat writers within the span of 42 seconds tweet, Aaron Judge left the game with what is with quote-unquote mild shoulder discomfort. That's how that news gets up there? So there is, so, phone? there is somebody in the press box who is a team employee. Who is, is, it's usually their, their, their um, number one media relations guy, right? Or gal. And the, there are requirements by Major League Baseball about informing on injuries. And someone will call from that phone or a phone close and say mild shoulder discomfort. And then that guy will, the, the, the guy or gal who's the meter relationship person will get on a little mic around the press box and go, Aaron judge left the game due to yeah. mild shoulder discomfort. And then everyone tweets it. Yeah. So I, that doesn't surprise me that that's how that works. I, I never actually thought about how that information gets up from dugout to press box. It's a phone. I just had never, I had never assumed that it was 
a landline that was specifically labeled press box. And it rings like a 1970s telephone. It goes, I just had assumed that was to call Murray Chass. No. Like, if you pick that up, Murray. Murray Chass picked up on the other end and started telling you a story about how much he hates OPS. <laughs> Is That's, he still alive? I don't want to speak I, ill of the dead. I, think he, <laughs> I don't even know. Um, so that's why the phone can call the press box. They have to do the injury explanations. Mary it's Chaz the, is still alive for what it's worth. It's the rules. What is it worth? Um, <laughs> our final baseball email comes from Ruben. It's also a hell of a sandwich. Hmm. Ruben says, hello, Kevin, and visiting cultural ambassador. Am I the visiting cultural ambassador? You are. Who am I representing? I didn't know this. I didn't know I had... To, this is like, a, like when you do like model un as a kid and you have to do like a presentation on your country of choice yes okay um this is going to be hard because my first thought was to pick a country like like one of the really tiny ones like micronesia or something mm-hmm. it's right there in the name and i don't know anything <laughs> and i don't know anything about them so it's a lot of I'll, I'll have to i'll have to beef up on my tiny south pacific island nation culture <laughs> knowledge before i can present myself as such so john will be presenting on togo in the second they have a, oh no i'm thinking of a yop they have those really big stone coins <laughs> or they used to anyway ruben says obviously money in the end will be the deciding factor for the majority of free agent decisions i also assume that some players use free agency as their first opportunity to decide where they want to or don't want to live and work for the first time in their professional lives i'm interested in the gray area in between is there an industry understanding that a team like Seattle has to add a premium to an offer to compensate for the extra travel hassle? Is there a team or a region that other front offices envy because players just famously want to live there? Or is there absolutely no signal there and just varies player to player? Any insight on the most influential deciding factors outside of money and competitive windows would be welcome. Um, it's very player to player, but it's important to note. So uh, we talked to Colin McHugh uh, a couple weeks ago. Uh, and Colin talked about how, you know, there's a lot of factors other than money for Colin McHugh. If you're not Colin McHugh, who's going to get a, a good deal? But if you are Carlos Correa, Trevor Story, Max Scherzer, one of the big dudes, um, there's incredible pressure from the union to simply take the most money. Um, in the sense that by you taking the most money, you are helping the, 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 the players below you. You're helping those coming after you. By, rising by, tide lifts all boats. Right, exactly. You're rising the tide to lift all boats. Uh, if you are more of a, a mid-market free agent, like Colin McHugh and others, um, is very much about these kind of soft targets, if you will. Um, some guys want to... Some guys, li- A lot of players live in Florida. A lot of players live in Arizona. And the ability to spend six weeks during spring training sleeping in your own bed is very appealing. Um, a lot of players are from California and love California and want to play in California. A lot of players don't want to play in California because they don't like California. Um, some players want to play in New York. Some players don't want to play in New York. Um, and you know, there's an advantage to being a place where there are players who want to play there. Um, don't take this wrong. I love Seattle. There's not a whole lot of players who want to play in Seattle. Um, travel's part of it. They also feel a little isolated there. Um, geographically, uh, it's not a place to make a ton of, um, extracurricular money, if you will. Um, and so it's, it's a harder thing. Um, sometimes California can be harder because of the state taxes, which is something that always comes up, you know, and, and, um, you know, I worked for a team in a state that had zero state taxes, uh, and, and the agents do the math and, you know, you know, the Astros could offer someone, you know, $8 million. It's a better deal, um, than the eight and a half they're getting elsewhere because there's no state taxes. Um, so that stuff kind of, kind of thing comes up and then, yeah, the, the moving the family thing. Yeah. Um, 
you know, the ability to possibly spend your whole season uh, near home or even in your hometown. And, and again, sleeping in your own bed and not having to move. Um, those things all play into it. It does not play into it for the big players because, again, there is uh, not a small amount. There is very large pressure on the big dudes um, to take the money. Um, but for these mid-range guys, it, it's, it's, there's a whole lot of things going on there. You know what's funny to me is the idea that competitive window and money as, a, as deciding factors feel like less important factors at this point because for the most part, the same 8 to 10 teams are always contending, so your competitive window <laughs> is pretty much the same. And most of the money, most of the deals that they offer are all within acceptable range of another, bar, like barring a national style, we're going to pay you until 2185 through deferred money. Mm-hmm. So... For the most part, and I know you mentioned obviously things like the sales tax and whatnot, like that does have a and the the pressure of the union to take the biggest deal that you can get. To me, it almost feels like the other factors are there's so much more variable that that can almost have more of an impact. I remember with Zach Wheeler choosing the Phillies in part because that's where he and his family are, and he wanted to be near them in part because I believe his wife was either just had a child or was expecting a child, yeah, and huge. he didn't want to be away from her for extended periods of time during that. So. And part of that, too, I, I, I can imagine, is also, you know, the simple fact of, hey, would you rather play for the Mets or the Yankees? Would you rather play for the Pirates or the Phillies? Well, maybe mm-hmm. that's not that huge a difference. But, you know, that there is that stuff that I, I mean, the, the one that I've always felt is like NBA style, where it's like the, the common trope that every free agent wants to go to Miami or Los Angeles. Right. Because you get to live in Miami or Los Angeles year round, as opposed to Boston or Milwaukee, where, well, they have winter. And baseball, obviously, a little different in that regard because during the offseason, you could just dip to wherever you kind of feel you, like if you don't want to be right. around for a winter. But go to, you can go to yeah. Miami or Los Angeles. Yeah, I mean, and that's I imagine a lot of guys do do that. They have their yeah. offseason home in Miami or in Los Angeles or in Phoenix. Or in, yeah, and there's they, a massive, massive chunk of, of, of players, mostly of Latin descent, who live in Miami. Yeah, and I would guess that's also part of it, too. If you're, if you're a Dominican player and Seattle makes you an offer... Seattle doesn't really have a very big Dominican community. You know, there's not and a whole lot of. So and you're also so far from home. Yeah, it's the other thing. You're a you are so, you are more than two flights, I think, from the Dominican. Rep- no, you're probably two flights. You're two. You're, you're, you're Seattle, a, Seattle, Seattle to Miami to San Domingo is, is, is a flight. Um, but that's 15 hours of travel. It's unbelievable. Basically. Like, and that's the if you live in Miami, it's two hours. Yeah, there's no it's reason a, to. It's a there's two, no reason it's a to two ten flight. Yeah, it's, 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 it flies three times a day on American Airlines, and there's others as well. But it's like it's two hours and ten minutes Miami to to SDK. Yeah, so I have to imagine those factors probably play a really big difference nowadays because the the landscape of baseball otherwise is all kind of the same. Like no one, no one is going to choose the Pirates over the Dodgers in the world where they somehow make the same offer, mm-hmm. which I guess they can for for lesser players. But no one's going to choose the Pirates over the Dodgers because of of, of necessarily, I think, money or competitive window. They're going to choose the Pirates because something about Pittsburgh is more appealing to them mm-hmm. than Los Angeles, be it the franchise or the city itself. Um, Pittsburgh's a nice town too. I can totally see wanting to live in Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh's you get very to, cool. Yeah. You get good. You get good Polish food. You get uh. You get the iron cheap Iron City beer. You. Okay, I'm kind of, I'm kind of starting to run out of things. But granted, I've only been to Pittsburgh for like two or three days. You get Pittsburgh's to go to the Andy great. Warhol Museum, which, which is, is a lot of fun. Cool. Yeah, um, you get the great. Carnegie Museum, which I haven't been to. Um, but yeah, I, I can totally understand that those factors definitely, definitely play a part. We'll take a break. We're halfway through the Thanksgiving email special. We'll come back with a trio of emails about total bases ball, and then we'll have your non baseball emails, and then. We'll let you get on to your big meal, so stick around. Mm-hmm. 
Welcome back to the podcast. You just heard a song by Kowloon Walled City. Why? Because I like them. Uh, so, if you are a listener to this, this is not your first show, and if it is, I'm sorry. Um, last week, co-host Hannah Kaiser of Yahoo uh, talked about her idea, which she actually had the courage or lunacy to pitch to Theo Epstein at the GM meetings of Total Bases Ball. Uh, are you aware of Total Bases Ball? So I hadn't listened to that episode, but based on based on both the emails and just the, the sheer title, I think I can uh, figure out what the basic idea is here. Basic idea is you get a point for a base. Yeah, that's that's right? pretty much what I gather. Yeah, you get you single, you get a point. You single the guy in first, you get a point, and the guy goes to third, he gets two points for advancing two bases. Total bases mm-hmm. ball. Right. Um, so I had a problem kind of wrapping my... I, I had all sorts of problems with this. It's a ridiculously stupid idea, and that's why I like it. Um, Those are the best ideas. I had a problem like trying to wrap my head around what scores would look like, and I said, well, I'll figure this out. And then I said, wait a second. I hear from our listeners every day, and I know they're psychopaths. Someone will do it for me. And I mentioned Game 5 of the 2017 World Series as being an interesting example of a game you should someone should score. And that's where Eric comes in. And Eric emails the show and says, I can't say I triple-checked it. Here's my try calculating the total bases ball score for Game 5 of the 2017 World Series. A few notes, and these were things that, that kind of Hannah and I clarified. Uh, walks and hits by pitch are worth zero unless they move a runner already on base forward. Wild pitches and pass balls were worth the base they allowed. Anyway, the results of Game 5 of the 2017 World Series were Dodgers 69, Astros 69. Uh, it's the sex number. And then he, of course, added NICE. In all caps. I sent this to Hannah, who called it a cosmic endorsement of her idea. So, just an idea, 6969. I, I thought about Total Bases Ball more than I should have, actually. And I thought about how really the only shutout would be in, would be a perfect game. Which then makes the perfect game even that much better. Even more perfect. Also, are we sure that this guy is named as actually Eric and it's not Rob Gronkowski? Like, granted, I don't think Gronk can do that much math to get yeah. to this point, but Eric, at the same time. I will say Eric accompanied this with a spreadsheet of, of him keeping score of the game. You're right. You do have some psychopath listeners. That's really impressive. You have no idea. You have no fucking idea. Um, and God bless them, everyone. Uh, so thanks to Eric for putting that together. Sixty-nine, sixty-nine. Again, I invite someone to do an entire World Series. I just want to kind of see if there's something weird going on. Um, we have two more emails concerning Total Bases Ball. The first one comes from AJ. And AJ is going to point out that Hannah's idea, not so original. Wow. AJ writes, I just wanted to point out the changes Hannah suggested last week with reaching bases leading to points is similar to the original version of Welsh baseball. Speaking of funny accents and parts of England, it's anything that was not part of England. Uh, and, and Welsh baseball that dates back to the early 1800s and possibly the mid-1700s. I grew up playing this game in Wales long before I gained any interest in United States baseball during the early 90s. Now, as a, well, as a Welshman living in New Jersey, because of my Yankee fandom led me to meet my Jersey girl wife, I still have fond memories of this version of baseball I grew up with. Simply put, are you sitting down, John? I I think I have to be because to record this, doing it standing wouldn't really make much sense. And lying your, down is just kind of Howard Hughes on his recluse bed. So, Is your chair comfortable? Oh, yeah, it's a pretty good office chair. I don't mind it. So here we go. Welsh baseball. You need to be sitting down for this. Okay. Every team has 11 players. Everyone bats. Anyone can pitch. Two innings per team, and the inning ends when the entire team is out. 
Outs are similar to those in baseball. Strikeouts, groundouts, pop-ups, flyouts, caught stealing, etc. But you, if you get a hit, you, I guess you bat the next time. And if you out, you don't. Yeah, that, that there's not clarification there, but that that would make sense. It's just it's a rotating. It's like um, it's like any it's like any standard version of like kickball, where the same people keep coming up over and over until you just get three outs total. So I don't think it's three outs total. I think it's like it says. It's oh, with, oh, so it has to be nine. Inning ends eleven the, outs. Okay. It's only two innings, but the inning ends when the entire team is out. So I would think like if like you know if you, if if one two three four five and six hit and two and three made the first two outs, it would be one four five six the, the next time around. Yeah. Oh, You're so out, they don't, don't get hit to bat again. again? I think clear this up for us, AJ. Uh, um, okay. Cool. If a batter reaches first on their at-bat, team gets a point. They reach second, team gets two points. They reach third, team gets three points. They get to fourth base. He called it fourth base, John. I don't know if I should go on here. I think fourth uh, base is Taco Bell. They get, four, they get four points. Only the catcher gets a glove. This is nonsense. <laughs> Even on a strikeout, you could run to first, meaning your first baseman had to be a good fielder without a glove because the catcher's throwing to him a lot. As a kid, your two best fielders were often your catcher and your first baseman. Okay, so my first thought on this is this sounds an awful lot like cricket. Well, Does I, it not? The, the cricket and baseball have some common genealogy, do they but not? This sounds, but this sounds particularly crickety, where everyone just keeps batting and you get points based on where you hit the ball to, and they're yeah. really, like, no one has a glove for whatever reason, which I've never particularly understood why they just let them, like, catch all these hard well-hit spheres with no glove like it's 1882 this also really does just sound like 1860s baseball um in that it's it's, just or it's barely organized chaos it's mid-1700s welsh baseball so on top of that hannah how dare you not research the history (laughs) of stupid scoring systems ball and stick games (laughs) from the enlighten the age of enlightenment Number two, I'm going to guess that the Welsh name for Welsh baseball has like six W's in it. Just none of them make any sense. Hey, Three, Dick, you're listening. Please send us the Welsh name of this game um, I, as well. As, but not only will it have like a bunch of W's in it, you will actually hear the W sound in the word itself. Three, I want to know what an argument between someone with a Welsh accent and a Jersey accent sounds like. Because holy crap. <laughs> Four, I have to think that the out scheme in this game is way more complicated because like 80% of men in Wales are named Gareth. So it's just like, you're just keeping track of an endless array of Gareth's just hitting balls randomly all over this. This is the other thing. What, how big is the field? AJ sent videos. I did not watch it. Okay. Cause like, if it's like, we're talking like one of those, um, 1920 style ballparks where center field is 600 feet away yeah 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 you're only gonna get four points for that although i guess granted you hit a home run over the center field wall and like shy park or whatever and should have counted for like nine runs but it was only one right um i i would love to see this actually played and not only would i love to see this actually played, i would love to see if you want to make all-star week really particularly funny and silly beyond make the, the all-star game total bases ball have the regular all-star game but have also a weird old-timey baseball game where they play welsh baseball. where they play with old-timey rules and like you can use soft balls or who cares what like literally soft balls so that nobody actually gets hurt seven like, balls is a walk like yeah, you're doing all, it all in, you're doing it in cooperstown it's the it's the supposed birthplace of baseball and where all the history of the sport resides comfortably like get weird with it make it a weirdo old-timey game where like 
there are no strikes or, or balls or whichever it was that came first. And yeah, you can everyone bats and there are only two innings and open fist name, fights. And if your first name begins with a C, you it's worth three runs if you do something. And everyone's really drunk the whole time. It's just that scene in El Doctoro's um, <laughs> uh, Ragtime where the father takes his son to a baseball game. It's a, it's a Giants game in like 1912. And most of the description of it is just all the various ways in which the players and John McGraw cursed at each other. And I just I just want to see that. Let's just bring that back. And the big, thick wool uniforms where everyone's really uncomfortable and sweaty. Uh, just a lot of cursing and drinking and the Irish aren't allowed to play or whatever. They're always <laughs> Irish. We, like, I, Grant, there's some racism about that time we can't bring back. There, there is some racism where it's like Italians can't play that I just find kind of weirdly funny. That it's just like, like why couldn't Italians play baseball? Oh, so, AJ, please send us the name of this game in Welsh along with the pronunciation guide. Uh, and a video better. of yourself arguing with your wife with subtitles. <laughs> uh, and what else? Do we? Oh, yeah, we need clarity on the batting order thing. I need clarity on a lot of the rules, but I, I really want to see what this version of baseball looks like played. I, I, I also, also I got videos. I'll send you the videos. I also imagine it's it's just the Conan O'Brien old timey baseball sketch. Pretty much, yeah, yeah. That's that's really what I'm hoping for. Uh, our final email came from Keith, and Keith, uh, this, I got a lot of these of people saying, "Oh yeah, well here's my idea," and they're all dumb. But here's Keith's dumb idea. Keith writes, uh, I intended on writing this email drunk, but instead I'm doing it while avoiding prepping for a meeting. I think that's the best way to go. The, the two genders. Because <laughs> hey, to, to steal from, from, also, Mark, from Mark Maron, if you don't prep the, for the meeting and you pull it off, you're a genius. And if it doesn't go well, ah, you didn't prepare. Also, you get a lot of emails from folks who are putting these together while like three or four beers deep. Oh, absolutely. I, well, I, like a few episodes I did ask people to email me drunk. Cause okay, well, one. that's fair. Um, but Keith says, I have a completely different stupid harebrained way to save baseball. And I think owners would like more than investing in a rebuilding stadium that came to me while watching some mediocre college ball and realizing that less talented fielding made the game a better viewing experience because college players just have less range than the pros. And this is true. Like major league baseball defense is absolute magic at this point. Yeah. It's, it's wild to watch those guys do what they do. Like they make play, like even in like Arizona fall league, those guys are making plays where I'm like, that's oh, way yeah. better than 99.9999999% of any person on earth could do. And these so guys you, are for the most part, like some of these guys are just organizational filler. So here's Keith's solution. What if teams change from nine players to eight? I think it solves a lot of problems. Keith goes on. The shortstop can change into a kind of a roaming infield-outfield role that becomes incredibly strategically valuable. There are bigger holes all over the place. The shift becomes not something that makes the game boring by causing more routine outs, but one of the most interesting elements of the game. Do we have three outfielders or two in this at bat? Do we have a giant hole up the middle? Put in a pitch clock and there's a ton of action as players reposition between each pitch. <laughs> I love I love the idea of explaining to Major League veterans... Not only is there going to be a pitch clock, but you, you guys are going to have to run around place. like a yeah. college basketball team setting a, setting screens. <laughs> you still have a ton of home runs, but you're limiting the number of routine outs. Other than all stats historically becoming meaningless, I like how there's just an off just like a, just an so, off statement. I mean, other like, than all other than all stats historically years becoming of organized meaningless, organized baseball getting thrown into a toilet. <laughs> other than that. And an 11% decrease in active players. What negatives am I missing? Well, every game now ends f like 38 to 26. So that's, that's a problem. not great. Like, a, there's only so much a pitch clock can do when every game now runs six and a half hours because there are no outs made anymore. 
the one extreme positive to this is imagine what a guy like Rich Hill would react or how he would react if a ball gets hit up the like he already he already just throws a shit fit every time a ball gets through because the shift was isn't was in a different place or whatever. Imagine how pissed he would be if he gets a routine ground ball that any defensive alignment would get, except because there's no shortstop anymore or whatever, it just goes he might just walk off the field right then and there. But like I to me this is I understand the idea behind this that you know the you open up those those holes defensively you kind of force teams to play more strategically in that regard but isn't that just a, a right. shift with a different name at a certain kind, point in, in a way yeah i think so um but you know if you have a really dumb idea on how to quote unquote fix baseball let us know yeah if, you, if you'd like me to sit here and poke holes in your drunk idea like a like a weird, annoying, like pedantic college professor. That's just a normal Tuesday for you. I mean, I have to say, I, I do enjoy the baseball <laughs> ideas that are basically like, what if we make the game just fucking crazy? Like, what if we just make it utterly unplayable and insane? What if we set the outfield on fire? But this is this is why, and I, I'll, I'll go back to my crazy All Star Weekend idea. If there's ever a time for you to do crazy baseball stuff just to see what it looks like, if Rob Manfred is really so insistent on floating these weird little trial balloons he has. Yeah, do it doesn't matter at all. Yeah, do it do it during the All-Star game. Do it during All-Star weekend. Give people something weird to watch. I mean, honestly, if you told me the All-Star game is going to be played with eight fielders instead of nine, I'd be way more likely to watch and be like, oh, I really want to see what happens with this stupid mess. That does it for Total Bases Ball for the week. Maybe we'll talk more about Total Bases Ball next week if we have enough emails. And again, someone do an entire World Series. Do a whole regular season. I'd see if your do team a, has the same all, record. Do an all, I'm going to say do an all-star Total Bases team, but that's actually kind of boring. <laughs> it's just the, That's just the best players in baseball history. Create a mod for OOTP where you can play Total Bases Ball. Everyone has things to do now. Um, someone did like send me a tweet about how they were thinking about making a script that would run in RetroSheet to do scores. Just to see what they would end up being. Yeah, and I, and they said I, I just, they said I would do this by the time, and I said, how is this not your top priority? Well, now now I'd like to know, and I, I wonder if it's possible to f- to kind of do the do a lot of the legwork with regards to finding the games through a stat head search. Mm-hmm. What would be the highest scoring total bases ball game in Major League history? That's a good question. I mean, imagine like, if I think about like you know, there's been whatever four or five games in the last twenty years where someone scored thirty. Like mm-hmm. you'd, you'd get into triple digits. Like if, if, if again, like if that if Game Five of the 2017 World Series was 69 to 69, there'd be teams getting in, in, into a, the 100 plus range. Well, now now I can say I've caught the same sickness that all these weirdos have because I desperately want to look up the 30 to three Rangers Orioles game and find yeah. out how many runs the Rangers would have scored. Okay, so that's your next assignment, uh, psychopath listeners that we love. Uh, go look up the Rangers 30 run game. Let us know what their total bases ball score is. Uh, it's time for our final email segment. These are emails that have nothing to do with baseball. Are you ready? There's no response. Are you ready or not, John? Yes. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> for, for, I'm, I'm, I'm here. I'm here. I'm ready. Let's go. Let's go. Let's do it. I'm here. <laughs> that was too much energy. That was a lot of energy. Um, first email comes from Bryce. It's Bryce Harper, I'm sure. I'm almost done. And Bryce point. says, outside of baseball, I'm a big tech geek. And by the way, you talk about your home theater setup. You are as well. It is. It is my midlife crisis. I admit it. Uh, I was wondering if you'd give us a rundown of your home theater setup. What TV did you go with? What was your shopping experience like, especially during COVID when presumably you did it all online? 
Do you have review sites that you trust? How much, how do you configure your TV out of the box to get the perfect picture? This is like this is dad bait of the highest order. Like You're if you want to get at me. Here, here's your Thanksgiving uh, dinner. Here's a uh, way to get out of awkward Thanksgiving dinner conversations. Talk about TV. Turn to the most middle-aged man at the table and be like, "So how did you set up your home theater?" Yep, that's 20 me. minutes gone. Just uh, right off the bat. I'm not going to take 20 minutes. Uh, I'm looking to take advantage of some of the Black Friday deals on TVs. And thought I'd ask, since you seem to have a pretty sweet setup. I apologize if you answered any of these questions. I have not. Um, I have a LG OLED TV. Um, they are the best TVs made. They're also more expensive than other TVs, but not insanely so. Like, I, you know, look, I don't know. If you want to reach out to me and give me your budget, I can recommend a TV. Like, there are very good $500 TVs. I spent almost 2000 on my TV. Um, they are amazing televisions. The picture quality is phenomenal. Um, I have a, uh, Dolby Atmos 5.1 sound setup. Um, and I would much rather watch a movie in my living room than a theater at this point. Um, between the sound and the picture quality and the fact that I have an open bar, I would way rather sit at home and watch a movie. And a pause button. And a pause button. Can I, there's so many movies now that are just a solid way over two hours and 15 minutes where you're like, you are way overestimating how much my bladder <laughs> can deal with this much, like, sitting. Yes. Absolutely. I it, It's, um, I can't remember the ma- name of the movie. Shit. Uh, it was the, the crazy Greek guy who makes the crazy movies. Oh, Yorgos Lanathimos? Yeah, it was the one that it took place in, like, the 1700s and the... Oh, The Favorite. The Life favorite, the thank you. It's a wonderful film. Really, really good. Um, one of my, you know, we didn't, haven't come to the movies for a couple of years, obviously. Um, one of the more recent film-going experiences was The Favorite, and all I remember was thing going, I don't know if this is over, but I really have to pee. I don't know if this is over, but I really have to pee. I don't know if they're getting toward the end, but I really have to pee. And in some point, I just got up. I, I can't. I have no, I might I might walk back and do the credits. I don't know. Did you? I did not. No, okay. there's still like a solid 20, 30 minutes left. Um, but The Favorite, how they're going to get But yeah, so I have a... An, an LG OLED TV, like if you know, I look. Everyone has different financial stuff. Like I, again, there's really good TVs for 500. If you reach out to me, I'll recommend one to you. But if you if you have the means, um, they're just outstanding. They're the best things in the world. Yeah, I will say if you're a if you're a TV budget person, the uh, TCL line of TVs. Yes, those are the... very good, cheap TV. I have a TCL TV that was like 350 bucks. I bought a couple years ago. That uh, I don't have a mine is just a UHD 4K. Nothing particularly mm-hmm. special about it, but. It gets the job done. It you know. So if you want something that is literally just a screen you can stare at that is bigger than your laptop, uh, definitely recommend that. Right. And TCL does make like a very well regarded budget TV that has more has HDR and and you know built in Roku and all stuff for like six hundred bucks. That's a, yeah. There's that's, there's this really good. Yeah. There's the there are a few steps up. Like if mm. you know they also make and this is particularly the case now. I think nowadays people get get more and more um, intimate with their homes. They make screen TVs that are really well sized for just like kitchens or bedrooms yeah. or, or stuff like that or, or you know just even you can use it as an extra monitor sometimes i think because they're for not sure. all that big um, but it's funny that when you said home theater setup i was imagining i was going to get something out of like uh what like ray liotta's setup is in goodfellas with like the big like japanese stereo system no no yeah the, nothing like that and then no man cave or anything like that just a very very nice setup in the living room subwoofer and everything Stream, i have a subwoofer um stream most stuff through an apple tv they are a little they're not a little they're overpriced but i'm kind of in the apple ecosystem so they're easy for me they really lock you in 
Yeah, they also, I really, Bryce Harper really should have a guy who can just do all this for him. Yeah, you know, I, I, I don't know. He's got to write into a podcast, be like, help right. me with my TV. He's like, Bryce, you make, you make like $300 million. Like, I, yeah, I will say this. Like, you could a, buy the entirety of like, well, Circuit City doesn't exist anymore. But right. <laughs> there was a uh, AJ Hinch, manager of the Detroit Tigers, was the manager of the Houston Astros and knew I was into this stuff. And he once called me from a Best Buy and said, I'm mm-hmm. buying a new TV. I said, fine, I'm going to tell you what to buy. And he goes, and I go, okay. I said, I'm just going to say this because I have to, but I assume you really don't care how much it costs, right? <laughs> he said, I don't. I said, fine. This is what you should buy. Said, I, I do you. wonder he what said, the. He said, I just want to get out of here in five minutes. I said, fine. I'll tell you exactly what to get. I do wonder what the minimum amount of money is required to buy one of every single item up for sale at a Best Buy. <laughs> I'm not, I, now I really want to know this. I want to walk into a Best Buy and be like, how much does it cost to buy literally everything in here? <laughs> You'd up with, what, 125 TVs? Yeah. Um, like you would 20... have so many drones noise-canceling headphones. And, and Bluetooth speakers. And cables. You would have so of, many oh, charging cables. A lot of Bluetooth. Yes. Yeah, and think of all the phone cases you'd have. Oh, man. And all the pop sockets. <laughs> you can start your own little uh, You can start your own little electronics store. <sighs> Our next email comes from Matt. Matt says, you say you like baseball, but not other popular sports because others are caveman sports. And yet, you love sumo. Please discuss. Um, I have talked about this. And the reason I love baseball, uh, as opposed to other sports, because baseball is so weird. Um, and the reason I love sumo is because sumo is so weird. Sumo is wonderfully strange. It's beautiful. Um, all the kind of pomp and circumstance is, is kind of foreign and alien if you're not native Japanese, but also quite gorgeous. Um, but the sport is also like a really fun thing to watch and also very, very weird. The rules are, the rules are obviously incredibly simple. I can explain to you the rules, Sumo, in 12 seconds. Um, but the fact that it's these unbelievably round people um doing this and we you know there's a tournament going on right now it's been a great tournament both takakesho and terano fuji currently nine and oh with six with six matches left um hopefully they will uh continue this and, and be 14 and oh in the final day but um i find this review but i also like find the personalities of these guys it's uh you know we watch every night during the tournament my wife said to me last night i almost feel like we know these people at this point and i think that's kind of the thing about sumo that makes it special is that they, we, there are personalities and we have nicknames for all those. Like there's a, there's a guy we call grumpy cat. Um, there's a guy we call the sad guy. Um, there's double boobs. There's all sorts of guys in sumo that we love and we have nicknames for and, and they're all wonderful. And it's, it's, a, it's kind of a wonderful sport. I also like the fact that a match takes, uh, can take as little it, on average. Most matches are done within 10 seconds. Yeah, it's, it's from what I've seen. I, I've not watched really much of any sumo. Most of what I know about the sport is just what I've read on and off or the, the very big Brian Phillips piece about it from several years ago now. I, the, the sense I do get connecting the, the sports of baseball and sumo is that there is just a ton of, like you said, there are rules that are both simple and elaborately weird. And there is a ritual to the whole thing that feels as much about enshrining those rules as it does about connecting to the long and extensive past of the sport and making sure that whatever exists in the present is in a in a way a reflection of what has come before and i think there's a similar appreciation for history is a weird way of putting it but a a similar i guess reverence for history i think that both those sports oh for sure where it's Uh, like records records and awards and all that stuff really really mean something in a way that i think other sports kind of 
Other sports clearly care about the past and history too, but baseball fetishizes they just don't it in have a way. It. Yo, for sure, that no is question. Honestly, detrimental to the sport sometimes, but is it also oh, yeah. makes it very special and it and it does give it a different appeal, I think, than a lot of others. I, f- I kind of feel the same way that it's like some of that is is I have fallen away from other sports in part because I've just watched more baseball and it's just kind of hard to balance all the sports on top of the TV shows you like and the movies mm. you want to see and the music you like and the video games you want to play and a life, you know, beyond all that other stuff. Um, <laughs> so I do appreciate too that Sumo, like you said, is something that it, like the thing is over in like 10 seconds. It's not like and, a, it's not like a college football game where you have to carve out four and a half hours. Or right. And it's it also easy. Like there's a tournament every two months. The tournament takes two weeks yeah, and that's, and, you know, and you know, and that's it. And then you have six yeah. weeks without, you have six weeks off, two weeks on. And um, I think too, it's, it's that same. And then every, tur- and every tournament's fresh. Like they start every tournament. Oh, and O. You know, no one, it doesn't carry over. Um, there's this wonderful ranking and title system for wrestlers. It's, that's very bizarre and obtuse. Um, where you have these higher ranking wrestlers with titles and you obviously heard the Yokozuna title. And I've said this before. It's kind of the most amazing thing about it, which is if you reach this highest title of Yokozuna and then you don't perform as, a, as would be expected of a Yokozuna, you don't fall down a rank. You are asked to retire. Yeah, like that level of like seriousness and yeah. and like I said, the kind of ritual of it, where it's like these are the rules and these are how the rules will be, and it's you know we're not modern. I mean, I'm sure the game, the, the the sport has modernized itself over the years in an effort to remain you know a thing that people can participate in and watch. But mm. I think like baseball, it's that same vein of like no, we're there are things about the past, even if they're kind of silly, that we want to hang on to pretty mm-hmm, much forever mm-hmm. because they are part of the DNA of the sport. Um, and I think base. I think that's the my thing with baseball is the same. Baseball is weird. Baseball is barely organized chaos for the it's most part. Filled with so many abstractions. It's, it's bizarre beyond belief. Like you can explain baseball in five. Like you assume you can explain baseball in ten seconds, but actually explaining the full breadth and depth of it would take you, God knows how long. Right. Little, if you ever, if you you know, if you take a someone who did not grow up in baseball, someone from Europe, um, and 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 sit them down like you know at an American football game they can understand it really quickly like baseball they'll still be baffled in the seventh inning. Yeah, I mean there are things about football that are just confusing no matter what. But yeah, baseball is just like okay, why why is it four balls and not five? And you just turn and go, I don't know. I, <laughs> right. I don't know. Like that's I do not rule. know. That's because the that's rule. the rule. Yeah. Why does a foul ball count as a strike, but you don't strike out on a foul ball? I right. don't know. Because <laughs> like, that's, that's the rule. Just how it is. That's what a bunch of drunks 140 years ago decided. And we're stuck with it. So the presidents of the 1800s decided. Yes, Franklin Pierce deciding that <laughs> Franklin baseball. Franklin Pierce is the man who said four balls. No gloves in baseball because <laughs> you don't feel it as much when you're drunk. Our next email comes from Robert. Robert says it's been fun to listen to the music from the show. I'm the same age as you, so I listen. So as I listen, I can hear some of the, the strains, such as certain performers who seem to own plenty to artists like P.J. Harvey. And thinking on great music from a little while ago, maybe think of this question. If you had to choose between listening to music from only before, say, 2000, or only music from after, which would you choose? Let's not make this for a rest of your life thing, but say for 10 years, you're off on a baseball mission somewhere, and somehow you'll be forced to choose your access while you're gone. Music before 2000, so you can listen to some of your favorite bands and artists you grew up, or music only after 2000, which of course would include new music. The optimism on Robert's part to assume that 10 years currently is not the rest of our lives is... <laughs> I appreciate that a lot. Where are you going with this one, John? 
This is that's a really tough question. Though. It's a fun one. That's a really really tough question. I feel like the older you get, the more you're invariably going to say before whatever the cutoff year happens to be. I was I was there, and that's here's here's the weird thing though. So like my first reaction was like just a gut reaction, and I just said, "Well, of course it would be before." Like I have all these you know these bands and artists that I love and 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 think are the best thing ever, and I'm an old man, and a lot of them are locked in you know from my my teens and my twenties and things like that, and of course I would do before, you know before two thousand, and then I thought about um. The last couple times I've I've traveled, like on an airplane, airplanes I listen to music. The last couple times I've taken long drives when I listen to music, and I have Spotify playlists. I thought about what was on those playlists, and it was all more newer stuff. And I didn't know which way to go. It's tough because, like, I have playlists too. That's like the, you know, I I listen to plenty of music that is new or newish anyway. And like, I think the hard part of it is like most new music is just by the way it is designed and produced and marketed it, it's just for younger generations it's it's right. their soundtrack not 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 the older ones so at a certain point i think the problem you run into is i have to sift through a lot of music that is basically not for me or at least not in my general direction to get to stuff i would actually want to listen to or at least not made for you yeah, yeah it's just not made for me like i you know, it's not to say it's bad. It is just not something that takes me into consideration as a listener because it's meant for people who are of a younger generation or of a different background or whatever it happens to be. <clears throat> but yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I went back and forth. I was shy. Like I was shy. My friends like, well, of course, before 2000, I'm like, but I think about the last hundred songs. If you look at my last hundred songs, I bet 90 of them are since 2000 yeah and that that's kind of the thing it's like i would miss out on a lot of the bands that i that i grew up loving or that are you know that i discovered later in life but that were from years and years before i guess it's it's nice i guess the the one thing that might swing me toward after 2000 is you know assuming that this 10-year period goes by otherwise fine you can return to before 2000 music after that. you haven't missed literally anything all that music is right perpetually preserved it, and didn't change it didn't change you can always go back to it it's Whereas a good at point. least 10 years of new music you're like okay I'm, i don't have to go back now and be like what did i miss in the last 10 years you're right so yeah that's a really good point so so with your 10-year rule i'm going to take i'm going to take since 2000 yeah i think if you were to say for the rest of your life it's harder probably before yeah that's a really hard thing to say all the artists you loved as a as a kid and as a teenager and as a young adult say goodbye to them it's like well i've already done that with a lot of these guys because it turns out a lot of these guys were just shit like just bad people and now we can't listen to them anymore but (laughs) which is why i appreciate a guy like steve albini coming out and saying like no i was a piece of shit and like we really needed to say something about that sooner and it's fine you can admit you're a piece of shit and it's not the end of the world not the end of the world folks change it it doesn't have to be you 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 are the you You don't have to lock into yeah you don't have to lock into who you are yeah. Um, Patrick writes, "What is your favorite piece of art, memorabilia, etc., baseball or otherwise, that you have hanging in your house?" Hmm. So I don't have a lot of baseball memorabilia. I don't own anything with logos on it or anything like that. Um, oh. When the Astros thing went away, I got rid of all my Astros clothes. I had to get a whole new wardrobe, basically. So I got so, <laughs> much, so I got so many free clothes. Too many, too many quarter zips. Um, I had a lot of cool shit that is in a box now. Um, uh, I had an Altoids tin filled with dirt from the mound on Dodger Stadium after Game Seven. That's right. Um, I stuff like that. the one thing that I did not put in a box that still sits here on my desk that I really do adore 
are my minor league championship rings. Um, I have eight of them. Um, you know, they're not diamonds and worth thousands. They're, you know, cubic zirconies or whatever, but they're, they're just, I, I, I do, I love them very much. On a non-baseball level, we do have, uh, my wife and I, a minor collection of, of art from Vanguard Studios, uh, which is other mid-century modern paintings. Um, they were done in a factory environment. And so they are signed, but not really. They are, you know, they were done by people. They're very mid-century modern. We have a, what do we have? We have a bullfighter. We got a boat. We got a horse. We got all sorts of these, these mid-century modern 60s paintings. They're not, you know, they're very collectible. People love having them because mid-century modern is hot, but like they're, it's not like they're original artworks by a, by a unknown artist. They're, they're worth like, you know, you can get one for like a hundred to $200. That's very um, cool. We have a lot of those that we, that I really like. Um, and my favorite, I don't know. I have a picture of my, 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 uh, my mother who passed away last year, um, from the early sixties, uh, from when she worked in the Flatiron building in New York at an advertising agency. And it's like something right out of Mad Men. Oh, that's really cool. Um, I, so, I always, I always wish when, when SI had left the time life building, cause mm. the SI offices, uh, for those who had never been in the old Time Life offices on 30 and 31 of that building. The walls of the offices were lined with SI photos. Like, because that was one of the great benefits of being Sports Illustrated was you had this enormous this photo, photo library. library of, oh, of, wow. And, you know, some of them were, like, were the the well-known sports. Some of them, I remember the one I, I, like, the one that always stood out to me was one near uh, the door leading to the bank of elevators to get into our office level. Where there was, it was basically just a series of snapshots of various hitters during Game Seven of the nineteen sixty World Series. So it was Mas- just action, yeah, game, just right? okay, yeah, just action shots of of players on both teams just organized in a grid, and it was just the coolest thing because it was very clearly like any one of those individual photos is not really you know it was just fine on its own, but all collected together, I just I just loved that in particular. I always mm-hmm. wish when SI had left those offices that I'd made a point of stealing one of those. <laughs> I got my hands on plenty of smaller, like just kind of knickknacks around the office. Like I have a lot of old SI commemorative issues for various Boston teams that I collected over my time there that I took home with me. I, I have a ton of like rando little baseball memorabilia. Like I'm, I'm the desk I'm at now. I look up on the shelves. I've got bobbleheads from various teams. You know, little little trinkets like that. Uh, you know, bats from giveaways. Uh, I know somewhere around here I have a cork from the Red Sox playoff clinch from 2018 that a friend of mine grabbed because they were in the clubhouse because I think it clinched at Yankee Stadium that year. They, you know, grabbed it off the floor and was like, hey, you want this? I was like, yeah, sure, this stuff is cool. I have a bunch of credentials hanging on the wall next to me. Like, so I have a plenty of sports memorabilia, but in terms of, like, art, I mean, I got plenty of art up on the walls, too. And, I mean, I, I like it all. I mean, I I got I have a particular soft spot for this random framed photo of my dog that, like, is, <laughs> I have a... I have a film camera that I bought during the pandemic, and mm. I was... It was it was a used camera, but I just bought it, so I was testing it out with the first roll, and I just snapped a just random like I, I didn't even think it was gonna come out. I just took like a, a test shot of him just sitting there, and when it got developed, it just ended up being this like the light was hitting him perfectly. It's the perfect photo like, of the dog. Yeah, and it was just like oh my god, that's just like this perfect accidental photo of this. This is like yeah, I'm gonna frame this and put it up. So it's like I love that. I love that photo. So. <laughs> But yeah, I have I have tons of I have I have baseball memorabilia that's just sitting in a small clear plastic kind of bin 
yeah. that had been on my desk at SI that I just have never managed to find a home for in my apartment because New York apartments are they're not exactly expansive places. Right. But yeah, it was just little stuff like that. Like the the little the little baseball card I have of Dodger Stadium organist Dieter Rula that's pinned up on my little <laughs> message board here thing by my desk. It's like just that's the kind of baseball memorabilia I like the most. Not the big it's just little stuff like that, you know? The bobbleheads yeah. and the baseball cards and the and the press uh, credentials and stuff like that. I have a, a lovely um, poster from the 1930s of a, for a circus sideshow. Ah, uh, yes. That's, um, a lot. That's a good one. Vintage a, posters are always a great investment. I have a sideshow thing. I'm into sideshows and kind of the human oddity sideshow things. Um, Very much into the, into the, what was that movie called? Freaks? The one yeah, of Todd us. Browning. One of us. Yeah. yeah. Um, I have a poster from the late 70s for a Sex Pistols show. Oh, that's very cool. Um, but I don't, I mean, I, there's not, I don't have any sort of, you know, like, I don't have a piece of artwork. Like oh no! Like my like the the legitimate like art quote unquote I have on my walls just prints from various museums yeah. that are like you know they were like fifty bucks or whatever. It's not right. actually like right. Come look at my Picasso. Right now I, we I have keep a cou- it above the fridge. Right, we have a couple paintings from a um, a French surrealist named Serrier that are probably worth oh okay like five to seven hundred. Like we found one at a uh, like a swap meet for fifty bucks and looked up it was probably worth five six hundred and bought a couple others because we like the work. Yeah. Honestly if you want art, highly encourage just finding your local galleries or art fair and just getting something there. Like it's the, something the, you like, yeah. Yeah, the, the, there's no point in, in getting like fancy art. The market for that is so expensive and stupid anyway. It's real dumb. Just and, go and, just go find something you like. Yeah. And like I said, like we you know we have three of these and they're all big like these Vanguard for, studio things. They're huge. <laughs> they're like they're like three by four feet or, or bigger. Them. For all the would-be art collectors who are listening to this podcast and trying yeah. to figure out which European country is the best tax shelter for their <laughs> for their gains. Our next email comes from Tony. Tony says, Dear Kevin and John on Only Johns, 40 episodes into this thing, you still have not answered or addressed the most important and pressing question. What the fuck are you drinking? Um, what water are you drinking? Was a, yeah, water, I have died, Dr. Pepper. What are you drinking was a big part of the last podcast because we recorded at night. And so we tended to be having cocktails. Um, I, I would yet, still, I still probably would have been doing water. <laughs> I, I have yet to record this show at night. Um, we recorded, tend to record in the afternoon. We actually recorded because of, of time constraints and schedules of people. Um, the episode prior to this with Hannah and Evan, we recorded that in the morning. Um, we did Evan at like 8.30 in the morning. Um, so, yeah, it's just it's not that interesting anymore. That's why we don't do what are you drinking. I'm also just like. Because the certain... sun's out when we record now. At a certain age, too, the answer to what you're drinking is either a, a, a fancy craft beer that is nice, uh, a glass of brown liquor, or some cheap beer that I just like because it is easy to drink. Because mm-hmm. at a certain age, it's more beer. about it being easy to drink than right. anything else. You know, I'm, I'm not putting down three or four drinks a night. Any, not anymore, but never really was. But, like, you just you, yeah, you can't really afford to do that. And if you are... I don't know. It'd be less like, what are you drinking? It's like, yeah, it's just whatever's in my fridge, honestly. Right. It's not that exciting anymore. Yeah. Whatever I happen to see at the supermarket and go, oh, that probably tastes good. Adventures this of Stress Run. This is a more interesting question if you have Jay on. Exactly. He's going to have some sort of beer you've never heard of. Yeah, and it's, it's going to be a very heavy stout. Yeah, I don't even drink beer, so. Oh, there you go. Um, two more emails to go. Our next email comes from Joyce. And Joyce says, Hello, Fangraphs. I'd like to write a guide for you to publish on your website. It's a quick start introduction to ecopreneurship. 
eco or how to or how to start a business that saves the planet full of helpful resources and a perfect starting point for nature lovers who are business minded i will write it and send it to you for free i'm retired and i believe i can help save the great outdoors while also helping local economies recover while you've probably heard of ecopreneurship Exactly. Surprisingly, few people realize that starting a business can also help save the planet. Nope. If, I write, if I write this guide for you, will you join me in my work by publishing in it? Best wishes, Joyce. Okay, it is not possible to start a business that saves the planet because the point of a business is not saving a planet. The point of the point of business, as far as I can tell, is ending the planet. Clearly, John, you've never heard of, of ecopreneurship. I, re- I respect the idea that it is possible... To be a corporate citizen, gross of phrases possibly exists, in a way that is less detrimental to the environment than the way certain I was, companies... I was even going to go further just, than you and say mildly responsible. Yeah, just throw their hands up and go, fuck it, lakes don't have to be... Lakes can be black now, whatever. You, you pigs don't care. And for the most part, we don't seem to. But, yeah, I... I mean, that kind of the other thing is like this. I don't want to. I don't want to rag on on the, the the affable retiree Joyce, who very clearly just wants to. Well, clearly, I mean, this was yeah. this was like a form that was sent to basically some sort of yeah, some sort is... of spider went and found email addresses on websites, and we got yeah. This. And so I, I mean, if Joyce is in fact real, um, I'd like th- I like thinking that this is actually Joyce Carol Oates. That's that's way funnier. <laughs> um. Yeah, please, please do not start. I mean, you don't start a business to save the planet. You start like a foundation right. or, a, or a charitable a non-profit. endeavor, the, non-profit. a nonprofit. Yeah, because that's the whole point. Like your business right. is, I, your the nonprofits is- that are like, I'm going to, we're going to create a team that goes down. I, I've seen ads for this, like that is raising money to send people to the, like send people to the ocean. That makes it sound very weird to go to the ocean and go down and have divers go down and basically attach inflatable buoys or uh, deployable inflatable balloon things that will take garbage up to the surface where it can be collected and taken out of the ocean. Uh, That's great. On my previous podcast, we had a guest who was on a boat and picked up garbage in the Pacific for months. Perfect. That's not a business, though. That's a charity. Yes. That's a nonprofit. There is no way to make money doing that. And that's kind of the that's kind of the whole problem. There's no way to make money saving the environment because if you're making money saving the environment, you're probably trashing it at the same damn time. For proof of this, look to the game Horizon Zero Dawn, where the lead bad guy of the past (spoiler alert) is a is the world's first trillionaire who got there in part because he helped clean up the planet, and then realized he really liked money. Elon Musk in that game. Video game. Yeah, honestly, the bad guy in that game is just a a horrible amalgamation of Zuckerberg, Bezos, and I. I guess Elon Musk would have been a little early for the game, but as it turns out, Musk, but yeah. You can't trust that. You cannot trust someone who says, I want to make a business by saving, or I want to make a business where I save the environment. No, you don't want to make it. You just want to make a business where you can make money off an industry where there's currently no one trying to profit off it all that well because it's really, really hard to do and is probably not all that ethically possible anyway. So, good luck, Joyce, with your ecopreneurship. We've reached the end, John. We're on our final email. All right. Our final email comes from Chris. And Chris says, I do have a question for the show. For both of y'all, he says y'all, both of y'all to take however way you want. What are one or two accomplishments you are most proud of? It could be professional, in and out of baseball, personal, make it a nice tie into Thanksgiving week, whatever. If it's too personal, I understand. What do you got, John? 
So, first of all, I appreciate Chris being a fellow y'all member. I've, I've always found that that's the best collective address for a group of people for use. Unless you want to say use guys, but that's a you really got to be something to pull that off. You, that's you like keep, an, yeah, that's an ethic. No, I'm not from Bayo, and I can't get away with that. Um, professionally, just, I mean, I don't know if there's any one single thing I would point to. There are a lot of articles I wrote that if I, you know, read them back now, I'd be like, oh, yeah, that was that was really well done. I'll just hang on to the fact that like it is really, really hard to carve out a professional career writing in any capacity, mm. much less in professional media right now, which is sure. a churning maelstrom of sadness. The fact that I am still working within this industry, despite the fact that it has made a habit of chewing up and spitting out everyone I know, uh, myself included, for a brief period of time, that's that feels like enough for me. Just to like, hey, I've you know, anyone who's still in this and still doing it should feel proud of themselves for that. Um, except for the like clickbait weirdos, you shouldn't feel proud of yourself. Because everyone who's people, yeah, everyone who's doing quality work and is managing to do it day day in and day out, despite companies that take advantage of them financially, that force them to do the work of two people for one, that force them to cover a landscape that is increasingly not hot, necessarily hostile to media, but difficult in some yeah. ways, and in an in a place where it's almost never been easier for there to be so many voices to drown yours out. Anyone who can make it, who can stick and hang through that should be deeply proud of that in any way they want to choose. Again, except for the clickbait people. Personally, and I think this is something that, listen, if you made it through the last two-ish years, we'll call it two years. If you made it through the last two years relatively in one piece, you should feel very proud of yourself. Yeah, God bless you. Man. What we just went through is the most insane individual personal experience since, I don't even know, the Great Depression, just in terms yeah, of the overall, probably, or, yeah, or the, or the Second World War, mm. basically in terms of the collective. Of anyone's life who's listening yeah, to the show. The collective trauma, stress, grief, misery, anger, sadness, all the other you know bad feeling emotions that we all went through. If you came out of that in any capacity sane, and still functional, and not only that, but actually came out of it like wanting to to help or do better, or just not give in to the the strain of just nihilistic, occasional glee that a lot of people just seem to have embraced. And by a lot of people, I mean certain people on certain ends of the political spectrum. You should feel very proud of that yourself too. Like we all we we made it. Nah, we didn't. It's not. It's not over. And maybe to a certain degree, nothing is ever fully over. As, as, as the great Dr. Manhattan, I should call it the great Dr. Manhattan, he's weird. As Dr. Manhattan once put it, nothing ever ends. Things just keep going, but we've made it. We have made it through this so far. A lot of people over the next week, over the next few days, more than should probably be advised, but a good number of people are going to go home to their families this year for the first time in a long while, in some mm -hmm. cases. That alone should just be a feeling of pride. If you can make it through your Thanksgiving dinner in one piece after the year we've all had you did it baby you did it go get yourself a big old drink after that or, or uh, the fattest joint you can find or whatever your poison of choice is, is in, in you know and just be proud that you made it through one to two of the single worst years in collective memorialized human history mm -hmm. like we are we are like as we undergo our weimar republic end of the russian empire like slow boil collapse you made it, for the most part. You made it. You got that going for you, which I is like nice. That. That's a good answer. 
Again, um, I'm, it's also weird because I'm saying this answer out to someone who's professional. Like you want, you literally want a World Series. So, <laughs> no, that's not, that's not even what I got. Um, if I want a World Series, I'd never shut up about it. It's uh, I'd be waving my ring around in everyone's face. Look uh, what I did. <laughs> um, I guess the thing I'm like the accomplish I'm most proud of is just I, that I just kind of did it. Not to get too Sid Vicious or Frank Sinatra, he kind of just did it my way. Um, yeah, I finished high school and moved to Chicago the day after my graduation. I didn't go to college because I didn't want to take four more years to be an adult. Um, I started working. I had the ability to kind of start a career. I wanted to do internet stuff when the internet got hot in the 90s, and I started doing that. Um, I wanted to do baseball stuff. I had had a chance to do baseball stuff, started doing that. Um, And just kind of the willingness to take leaps as opposed to just saying I'm going to I'm going to upset some reader here or some listener here like I'm going to go to school and get a business degree and whatever that means is fine and I'll have a career. I, I think I think even people who have gotten business degrees would agree that it's a <laughs> horrible use of your time and money to go get a business degree. But yeah degree. the fact that I yeah this, I just kind of this is I went my route and um and and kind of followed my gut and did what I wanted to do. I feel like most proud that I've spent not all of my life, but a good portion of my life waking up happy to do the work I was about to do. I mean, there's that, there's the, it's a cliche, but it's, you know, if you like what you do, you never work a day in your life, right? It's yeah, not it's, true, but it's I, I do think true, it's true, but it, it means a lot like to never like, yeah, I've, it's been a long time since I've like really, oh, I don't want to work. You know, it, it's, um, I'll just wait till the next big free agent signing comes, and I tap you'd have to write about it at 11 p.m. I got like, yeah. I mean, it's funny because like it it, it 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 came out yesterday morning, and then but it's still not official. And like nothing else came of it, and so it's just I'm oh sitting, the Sandy Alcantara extension? yeah. I'm sitting here with with no paragraphs, but like a whole breakdown of Sandy Alcantara that I'm ready to turn into paragraphs. Just sitting there. Yeah, so, it's... I'll be ready. It's, and that's the thing. I mean, that's the annoying. I remember um, when the original Aroldis Chapman to the Dodgers trade happened. Oh, God. Um, I was I was an editor at SI, and I had one of my writers, um, Cliff Corcoran, actually, who, yeah, uh, if, sure. if, for those who do not know Cliff, he's a, he's got a great sub stack you should sign up for, just general baseball stuff. He's a great guy. Uh, he wrote up the initial trade, you know, because we were in that position. Okay, let's mm-hmm. just start writing it, and when the details come out, and when it becomes official, then we'll, you know, because we want to get it out there as, as, as soon as possible. Right. Got to feed the beast. But, of course, that trade got spiked for very good reasons, and so we just kind of sat there and we're like, um, maybe we'll just wait for the trade, if it happens again, to become official before we jump in on all this, because <laughs> I remember in a similar vein, uh, when AJ Preller took over the Padres and had his explosive rebuild or whatever you want to call that when he traded for half the league and just kind of sitting there editorially and just being like, what are we supposed to do with half these deals that are taking six days to complete because there are 19 moving parts, all of which involve Matt Kemp's degrading hips. Like, what are we supposed to do about that? So that, that, that's always a part of the, of this, the, the particular baseball work when, when things happen and there's that expectation that you're supposed to have something, but you got to wait because these are real life things. It's like, blah, 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 blah. That can get a little frustrating, I think. But yeah. otherwise, I mean, and that's kind of the thing about working in baseball media is it's just there's so much cool stuff you get to be a part of and to see and to get introduced to. And, you know, yeah, there are parts of it that suck immeasurably. But they're also working parts at of it Sears. Just, yeah, they're also just, yeah, it really is true. 
Yeah. Oh, you. by the way, if you want some very, very, very late-breaking uh, MLB news, Kendall Graveman's going to the White Sox. Three years, 24 Three million, years. looks like. Yeah, so I guess Craig Kimbrell uh, is not going to be staying there. I mean, I don't think he was going to be staying there much longer anyway, but now they really are going to have to trade Craig Kimbrell. <laughs> that'll be easy. Yeah, that'll be just super easy. Hey, here's a reliever. Who was, he was a closer who was bad last year and cost $16 million to the group of the most financially spending-averse people in the entire universe. Who wants them? Good luck. Yeah, have, have good... Yeah, Well, I mean, AL Central flags fly forever? Sure they did. They yes, I'm, I'm not going to crap on that tr- trade in retrospect. It was a good deal at the time. And, it's a good deal at the time, and then they... Yeah, they have, and I, and I don't there'll be a think, flag in that stadium next spring. Yeah, and I, I also don't think that uh, Nick Madrigal is the kind of guy the White Sox are going to look back on 10 years from now and go, well, God damn, why did we do that? No. I, um, I like Nick Madrigal, but I, I don't think that's... that's he's, he's all right. He's fine. He's fine. Yeah, he's fine. But, man, that is that is going to be a weird... It's going to be a weird bullpen arrangement, or weird bullpen deal that the White Sox are going to have to figure to move on from Kimbrell, because they, they really... They, they got to they gotta do something there, because he really should not be not closing. Yeah. <laughs> That's just not something he does well for whatever reason. He just does not do not closing well. It happens. I, I don't get it. I've never understood it, but he just doesn't do it well. He needs, he needs, he needs the, he needs the, uh, he needs the energy. He needs, he the, needs the juice. Yep, he needs the juice. Yeah. Um, I think we're done here, John. All right. I want to thank everyone for sending us oh so many emails this week and helping this show be possible. Uh, John, I want to thank you for wasting your Tuesday afternoon with me. Of course, um, it's always it's always fun to hear from the loyal band of just loyal. absolute lunatics who listen to this show and <laughs> sit there thinking to themselves you know what i'm gonna do is go through the entirety of a 2017 world series game and count up all the bases and assign points to them <laughs> i really appreciate that people do that because i have oh, no question at the, 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 staring at the, the rangers 30 to 3 box score and already You're starting to think it. okay what does this look like there were the rangers had 39 total bases just off just to start just from hits. Just from hits. Yeah, you're going to get over 100. Um, yeah, it's going to be real ugly. So, uh, if you want to write, we'll do emails. Obviously, we do emails every week. Please write us. Chinmusicfancrafts.com. Um, if you are off to do holiday stuff, please have a wonderful, uh, delicious, and very safe Thanksgiving holiday with your family. And, um, you know, noise-canceling headphones can drown out your family if you need them to. Uh, other than that, we will uh, talk to you next week. It looks like, I shouldn't promise anything, but it looks like the co-host will be Lindsay Adler and our special guest will be my friend who's a professional poker player. So oh, wow. get ready for that action. And get ready th- for a lot of talk about big blinds and bad hot odds, folds. I don't know how to play <laughs> poker. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll talk to you next week.